Welcome to Solving the Conflict. This is your host, Benjamin Sklar, and today's guest is Gurney Pearsall III. How you doing, Gurney? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to be back. It's nice to have you back. A lot to discuss, mainly yeah. in regards to the Israel-Hamas war. Just like last time. I just, uh, where we last left off, if I remember this right, you were asking questions that were more hypotheticals of what happens if that and what happens if this. And I was saying, as all lawyers say, well, it depends and we need more facts. We need incidents to look at for specificity. And since then, the uh, South African government has done us the favor of compiling every fact it could find, every incident it could find towards at least one accusation. And they filed that case. And now we have specifics that we can talk about and analyze. Break it down for us. Okay, I'll break it down. Please. So it takes a lot of background. Uh, I want to start with just a broad overview. And then if I'm getting too much into it, I like CLEs. So I'm in the CLE mentality. If it's getting too much background, you can just tell me and we'll jump into the case. But generally what the lawsuit is, uh, it's a claim that Israel's military actions in the Gaza Strip are violating the Convention Against Genocide. So last time we spoke, I forgot when, it seems like like years ago, but last time we spoke, we were talking about the Geneva Conventions. This is a whole other convention, the Genocide Convention, which is expanding on those Geneva Conventions. What South Africa is asking for is an interim order from the court. It wants a ruling in general, but for now, immediately, it wants a preliminary order that will end all Israeli actions in Gaza and order Israel to, quote, cease and desist from genocide. That's the remedy. So just a little background about the courts. This is where we are. It's the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. It was created in roughly 1920, technically, uh, under the League of Nations. And then 1945, it was revamped under the UN. And the point of this court is to resolve disputes between the UN member states, if they both agree to go to the courts. What the court can do is declare a violation of international law. It can order reparations from the state that's violating the law. And it can order states to take actions to come back into compliance with international law. As is often the case, uh, the court is just ignored. But even when it's ignored, it is a massive hit to a country's reputation and to its diplomatic efforts. If the court is saying, for example, you're committing genocide or any other offense, that is just a massive black mark to the states. And if it is violating the court orders, the court can't do anything, but the UN Security Council can follow up on that. This court belongs to the UN, and the UN has a strong interest in making sure that states are complying with its orders. So the UN could authorize sanctions, it could authorize armed force, it could authorize really a lot, but as soon as the UN Security Council is allowing states to you know, go to war with you, that's already a pretty severe penalty. So I just have seen so many commentators saying, it doesn't matter what the court says, it can't enforce the actions. There is no court that can, but there is an executive, the UN Security Council, which can enforce those uh, decisions. And also, if it's ignored or not, the decision will shape the narrative of a conflict. And the narrative is so important in a, a age of an age of social media. It's all about narrative. That is almost even more important than the reality. So it's an important case. That is why Israel did respond to it. Oftentimes, Israel just sort of says, "We're not getting into it. We're not dealing with the ICC and whatnot." Or the ICJ, for I think one of the first times, Israel actually sent a delegation and addressed it in detail what is going on. Now, I mentioned the ICC. There is a whole other courts uh, also sitting in the Netherlands, in The Hague, with the ICJ. But the International Criminal Courts is a separate UN court 
it prosecutes specific individuals for international crimes. So we got two courts. Uh, the issue with uh, the invasion of Ukraine exemplifies the difference. So you have an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin specifically. That came from the ICC. Then you have a dispute between Ukraine and Russia about the legality of that invasion. But that's at the ICJ, because that's a state-on-state -state dispute as opposed to an individual. That's the background about the court and uh, why we're at the ICC or at the ICJ instead of ICC and what the ICJ does and what it could do in this case. Um, in this case, we have just one law that South Africa wants to focus on, which makes it a lot easier for us to just laser focus on one area. And it is the Convention Against Genocide. So I think it helps to go back to where this law started. May 1948, uh, the United Kingdom is in the mandate for Palestine, and it just it leaves. It, has, it doesn't have a replacement. It just leaves and figures the locals will sort it out. And sort it out, they did. Israel declared independence. As soon as they left, it's invaded from all sides. After a year, by May 1949, this invasion is grinded down to a stalemate. There's a ceasefire, and the, Israel joins the UN, becoming, uh, fun fact, the 60th member of the UN. I didn't know this until I was prepping for this uh, podcast, but I was trying to figure out what, what number is Israel in the UN? Because it's one of the first countries. When the UN was created, there was maybe 30 countries in the UN. Anyway, so this is 1949. At the UN, Israel signs a number of conventions, like the Geneva Conventions, where there is a, a phrase in the Geneva Conventions. It says, here's a list of crimes that are not just war crimes, but these are grave offenses against the law of war. Meaning it's, these are everything that violates Geneva Conventions is a war crime, but these offenses are the worst of the worst. And as you can imagine, genocide is listed in there. And this is a new word. It was just defined recently by, I, I forgot his name, but I believe Mr. Limpkin. There was a, a Jewish lawyer who wanted to put a name to what the Nazis did in the Holocaust. They called it genocide. The problem is the Geneva Conventions, it just says genocide is a grave war crime and it leaves it at that. And you have no idea, but what is a genocide? So the Genocide Convention uh, represents all these countries coming together to try to put a definition to this word because without a definition, it's just a meaningless uh, ideal. So in the Genocide Convention, it takes this word and it, it works on it. It gives it a definition and it makes it clear that genocide is not just a war crime, it's just a crime. Whether war or peace, it's forbidden. And that's where we are now. We have the Genocide Convention uh, as the basis of this case against Israel. What is forbidden in the Genocide Convention are four kinds of conducts. So everyone assumes, of course, the genocidal acts are forbidden, of course. Uh, but the convention is a little broader. E even complicity in genocide, attempts at genocide, even incitement to genocide on a state level, forbidden. If an individual does it, maybe the ICC would get into that. But if a state does it, that's where we get into the ICJ and the grounds of a violation, potentially. And it defines genocide. This is the most important part. What even is genocide? It has, to me, it has a three-part definition. Some people say two, it's just whatever you want. I see three. There has to be genocidal conduct, which already, you're not supposed to use a word in its own definition, but this is this is what it is. So a genocide is genocidal conduct, first of all, carried out with genocidal intent, second of all. And third, it has to affect a protected group. So, and feel free to, if I'm taking too long or I'm getting too much into it, feel free. But I like to work it backwards because... 
there's so much to get into here, but a protected group is the most straightforward part of this definition. You have four kinds of groups. You have nationalities, ethnicities, races, religions. If you have a set of victims who are targeted because of their real or perceived membership in one or more of those groups, then you have that third elements uh, being satisfied. So to me, it's like a hate crime. If I go outside right now and I assault someone, that is a regular crime. That's assault, it's battery, it could be a number of things. But if I did that because I have a hateful intent in my head, and I just hate all Japanese people, hypothetically, I don't, I'm, hypothetically, now it's a hate crime, and now it's a much worse offense. It's, it's an aggravated offense in the criminal code. And in the same way, in wartime, it's already forbidden to intentionally target a peaceful civilian. In other words, a non-combatant. It's already forbidden. But if you do that on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, now it's like a hate crime. It's, it's a war crime. It's not, not a war crime. It's genocide. It's a much more severe violation. It's considered the crime of crimes. As they said in this, uh, both sides in the court case have mentioned, this is the crime of crimes. It's the ultimate crime. And uh, it's a severe accusation. Now, there are certain defenses. Just like in a hate crimes case, you'll have, you'll, you'll see defenses like, yes, I attacked this person, but it was, uh, it was at random. I didn't even know he's Japanese. Everything I said about those people in the past, coincidence, I was just, I was in a blind rage and I was punching whoever was my closest target. People say also for a defense that it was unintentional. Maybe there's a shootout, police and robbers and someone gets hit. Uh, they're not being targeted because of their race or so on. They're, they're, they're just there and it's an accident. There is also the defense of, I did target this person. It was intentional. There's no accidents, but I did it because of their membership, real or perceived, in an unprotected group. Like, for example, they're soldiers and it's a war and uh, military groups as you can imagine, are not protected groups as far as the Genocide Convention or Geneva Convention. There is another common defense of this person belonged to a political group. This person was, for example, China has, um, we could say it has beef with the Falun Gang. That's one group. Or there are so many groups we can think of that are political groups. Um, and actually, just interesting backstory. And this is where we might start getting into rabbit holes, so feel free to stop me, but I thought it was interesting. Originally, political groups were going to be included as one of the five protected groups that you cannot target politicians or people for their political beliefs. That's genocide. But then the USSR, because remember, it's 1950, USSR said we will not sign that. And we will make sure that nobody in our satellites communities in East Europe and Asia, we will not sign that. And so the UN said, all right, well, in that case, political groups, fair game. But everyone else, ethnicity, race, religion, nationality, that's protected. So South Africa's case, I think, in a broad nutshell, and I want to get into the specific arguments because everyone likes to summarize, but I think the basic summary of the logic of their case is that as far as the protected group element goes, they first want to argue, basically, that even a military targets can meet the definition of genocide. If you attack even a purely military target, if you're doing so with hateful intents, even if no civilians are harmed, that's still a genocide. Um, and the idea basically is that you're attacking this target, you're claiming it's because it was a military target, but really that's just a pretext to exterminate the race that uh, is comprised of this military group. Because Hamas, as you can imagine, it's 100% Palestinian. I don't think they have a lot of non-Palestinians in Hamas. So South Africa, it never quite says it explicitly, but this is my takeaway. When they're coming to 
the protected group issue. I think they're trying to say that Hamas counts as just the Palestinian people. Um, it's it's a stretch. It's basically asking the courts to rewrite the Geneva Conventions to where attacking a purely military target, like in, in the Geneva Conventions, if you have a military necessity and you distinguish between civilians and combatants, if you use force proportionally and you're not using chemical weapons, biological weapons, all kinds of inhumane weapons, that's the four-part analysis that to think about. And intention is not part of that analysis. You want to make sure the intends to spare civilians and minimize damage and all of that intents. But as far as attacking a tank, uh, whether or not you hate the people in the tank is just something that as far as law of war, it's just not even a consideration. But it seems like the argument here is it should be and that maybe it is a violation of the genocide convention. Because interesting part of the genocide convention. So the way it's written, it doesn't say anything about war. It just says don't target these four targets in war or peace. So there is some ambiguity. And I imagine maybe some of the 17 judges, there's a lot of judges on this case, they might be grappling with that question of here is these two conventions. One is for war, one is for war and peace. And there's a lot of overlap. So what do we do if there is some ambiguity, maybe some conflicts, which one will prevail? Um, I think we can anticipate it from at least one judge out of the 17. Now, it, putting that aside, so that's kind of a stretch. I don't think the judges will rewrite the Geneva Conventions. It's not their job to rewrite law as much as interpret it. The other argument, essentially, is that the conflict in Gaza is so disproportionate and the attacks on military targets are affecting civilians just so severely that that should count as genocide. Uh, just widespread destruction should become evidence of genocide. That's the argument in a nutshell uh, as to protected groups and how Hamas figures into that idea of is it protected, is it not, is it a military group or political group, or is it just the people, the, the Palestinian people? Okay, I'm running out of breath. So the, the next part is intense. We were getting into the protected group. If I'm talking too fast, let me know, because I, I tend to talk way too fast. Uh, and I know we only have an hour and we have so much to get into, but the next part is intense. So this is unique to genocide. I don't know that this is the only crime in international law with specific intents, but it's one of the only ones to where we have a subjective analysis about what is going on in the heads of the perpetrator. Typically, it doesn't matter how you feel about your victims. If you intentionally target a non-combatant, that's already a crime, whether you love them or hate them. It was that intense to target, that's the problem. In the genocide convention, the problem is more about why did you target them? Was it hateful or was it some other reason, any other reason besides intent to destroy the group in whole or in part? That's the specific intent that we're looking for in the state actor or from the ICC in the individual actor. Specific intent to destroy in whole or in parts. And up until a few days ago when I was researching for this podcast, I assumed this means even the death of one uh, non-combatant could be genocide. Even one person is part of the protected groups. But as I looked into it, the case law from the ICJ and ICC makes it more apparent that it needs to be a substantial part. So one person is ultimately, it can be terrible, it can be a war crime, it can be a number of things, but this is the crime of crimes, this is the ultimate. So you need to have some evidence that a substantial portion of a group is either being destroyed or at least that's the attempt. What is substantial, nobody knows, but it's not one person. Okay, now, uh, 
if there is mixed intents, let's say you are acting in self-defense, you hate a group, but you're also acting in your own self-defense, or you have extreme hatred for a group, but what you're doing is dispersing them or removing them from an area or engaging in what they call cultural disruption. It's called cultural genocide. ICJ prefers the term cultural destruction. None of that would meet the definition of genocide according to the ICJ. This is not my opinion. The ICJ case law really wants to distinguish between a number of really terrible things and the crime of all crimes, genocide. Uh, lastly, for the case law about intents, one major factor for the ICJ is that they put a distinction between the intents of one individual, whether it's a soldier, prime minister, or anyone else. They have intent in their own heads, and in the ICC, that's important. In the ICJ, we're talking about the intent of a state, and there's no one person who has the thoughts of a state. The state does not have thoughts, but what the state does have is a systematic plan or a policy, some kind of a systematic, they call it plan or policy. If there is something that everybody is doing systematically, that indicates the so-called intents of the state. So in some cases, like, uh, I don't want to keep getting off track, but I think it's a good example. It's China. China is accused of carrying out a genocide of Uyghurs. Those are uh, Muslims living in Western China. And we can get into details maybe if we have time. But the point is, Chinese officials, at least to my knowledge, they have a lot of discipline as far as messaging. They don't say anything genocidal or hateful about Islam or about the Uyghurs. And yet from the uh, actions on the ground, just from the consistent, widespread policy being implemented in what was formerly the Uyghurs country, East Turkestan, I believe, East Turkmenistan, they have an area in the West. What's being implemented there to me, ICJ would say, this is clearly a policy. This is not sporadic. It's not an accident. It's not unintentional. There is some policy being implemented, and that will tell us what is the intent of the state, even if the state never said anything explicit for us. And of course, you can say the same with the Nazis. They, they made their intent very explicit through their uh, statements. So that goes into intent. And the last part is where we began with the actual genocidal act. What is a genocidal act? So the convention lists five kinds of acts which thankfully makes it much more straightforward than intent. Intent is kind of a vague idea of a plan, but for actual conduct, the five kinds are killing, of course, killing, mass killing would be genocidal, but also serious bodily harm uh, or mental harm, imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group in whole or substantial part, systematically preventing a substantial amount of births from that group, and forcibly transferring children out of the group. So for the last one, uh, basically South Africa claims Israel is doing all of that besides the last one for kidnapping. That's actually the case against Putin specifically with the ICC. They filed their uh, arrest warrants because they're saying that Russia is abducting, I forget how many tens of thousands of Ukrainian children out of Ukraine into Russia to help them forget their heritage. So that's an example of what would be an act of genocide. In this case, we have everything but that according to South Africa. So that's generally, that's what the law is. Um, I can I can go on it forever. I, I just don't want it to be a, a monologue. That would be kind of boring for a podcast. I'm happy to take questions and, and make it more conversational. That's the basis. That's the, the floorboard for where we are. And the rest is just a matter of analyzing whether all or some of that is actually at issue. Wow. So, I could do it. Yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> what time? We got 
I went into 20 minutes. I want to be cognizant of not going way over time. As Please I... continue. Continue think, continue your train of thought until you okay. finish. And then okay. We'll... Oh, it's going to be a while. But I can tell you this. So there is a historical development. I looked through every case that has ever touched on genocide in the ICJ. It's only five cases, so it's not going to take too long. But maybe for 10 minutes, if I get into the background, it's helpful and it's relevant because the parties on both sides, in this case, they keep referencing Bosnia, they keep referencing uh, Russia, Myanmar. These are three major cases uh, recently. And then there's two others, not as relevant, but still useful. So I'll, I'll just jump into it and tell me when I'm taking too long. Generally speaking, so over the last 75 years, the ICJ has handled 191 cases, which is very tiny. That's like three per year. And it takes roughly 15 years to get a decision in these cases. So it's Pros and cons to it, but at least what people go for is the preliminary order. People really like that order up front. Now, of these 191 cases, five involved a genocidal accusation. The first one was in 1951, so right after really the convention was ratified. Um, there was a petition from a civil rights organization. It was called the Civil Rights Congress, very similar to the NAACP. They believed that the NAACP was not doing enough. So they were the ones who were taking action, basically. And they were all about African-American rights and issues. So what they did is they gathered 207, 237 pages of just evidence of all the abuses suffered by African-Americans, whether it's uh, segregation, poll taxes, lynching, just any systematic discrimination, they compiled it. And because they're not a state, they couldn't, they couldn't file it. So they basically were giving it to different uh, UN officials in 1951. And they alleged in this case, it was called We Charge Genocide. They alleged that there is a genocide going on by the United States against African-Americans. And specifically, the act was that, I think it was the fourth one of intentionally imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group. And it's a fair point. I mean, what they were saying makes a lot of sense. But ultimately, it doesn't count as one of the 191 cases because they're not a state. This is a court only for state disputes. So... The ICJ never addressed this, but you can see at least uh, this is the logic of how these cases work. And in theory, if the Soviet Union or South Africa or anyone else wanted to take that case, in theory, that could have proceeded at that point, but nobody did uh, in 1951. So for a long time, it is just uh, a, a quiet moment in the ICJ about a genocide until we reach 1993. So now we have the first case where they actually take the case and make a ruling. And it's a landmark case simply because it's the first. And we're finally interpreting what is genocide in practice. So in the early 1990s, specifically, so in 1991, and this is so overshadowed by the Gulf War that for Americans, we rarely even heard about this. But at the same time as the Gulf War, we have a country called Yugoslavia. And in 91, it is breaking apart into its various melting pot states. You have Croatia, Slovenia, and Bosnia. So Bosnia is a, when it breaks apart, it is a Islamic state. But the problem is 50% of the people who live there are either Catholics or Eastern Orthodox Serbs, Serbians. And they want to stay in Yugoslavia. They don't want to leave. Uh, at the least, they want to create their own state of Serbia because they don't want to live in a Muslim state. And the uh, Bosnians disagreed. They were like, you know, it's, it'll be fine to live in a Muslim state and this is our holy land. So this is it. This is the best you got. So there was a civil war that broke out known as the Bosnian War. That broke out in 92. And there were mass killings that were happening right away of just the non-combatants. 
So the Bosnians filed a claim in the ICJ saying that uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia, whatever you wanted to call it, it's the same thing. They were uh, violating the Genocide Convention. And there were hearings, and shortly after the hearings, the ICJ ordered Yugoslavia, aka Serbia, to abide by the Genocide Convention. They ordered both sides need to abide by international law. And that includes, because the main issue was paramilitary forces. The Serbian army was, was okay, but there was these paramilitary forces that were really going uh, way beyond what the law of war allows. So the court ruled that you need to do what you can to prevent genocide by these paramilitary forces, even though they're not taking your orders directly. So that happened in 92, 93, 93. Two years later, the war is over. Serbia splits off from Bosnia. Yugoslavia is gone. And then in 2007, the court finally issues its opinion. Again, it was filed in 93, and it's only until 2007 where we get a decision. And the court basically says Serbia, uh, it clears Serbia of genocidal acts, attempts, complicity, incitements for every incident besides one. And this is an important incident because this is, I think, getting into what is genocide, at least according to the ICJ. So there was a massacre at a city called Srebrenica. Srebrenica, I want to get it right, Srebrenica. And what happened here is you had a Serbian paramilitary force surround a Bosnian city. There was 40,000 people in the city, roughly. And the paramilitary force, and not just at the city, but this was a safe haven. The UN said this is a safe haven where there will be no military, no weapons. It's just peace uh, with the peacekeepers in the area. So peacekeepers are dispersed. And then the Serbians are just shelling the whole area. And then they run through the area and just they, they pick out... 8,000 Bosnian men and boys and execute them, which already tells you this is very targeted. This is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. This is an intentional targeting of males of all ages. So for that incident, the court ruled that, yes, at this point, Serbia did violate the order. It didn't do anything directly, but it had the order to do everything possible to prevent genocide among or by the pro-Serbian paramilitary. And I suppose maybe the Serbian army was nearby and they could have stopped it and they just didn't. So that violated the order. And then the uh, commander, the paramilitary commander. So he went on to have a illustrious political career in Serbia. And he was indicted by the ICC for war crimes, of course, because he was leading this incident. And the Serbian government did not hand him over. That violated the ICJ order as well. So th that's a takeaway. Basically, you have to have a very clearly genocidal acts, in this case, an intentional mass killing of non-combatants. But for the most part, the court did not see intent in anything but this most extreme, this most obvious example. Um, and ordinarily, you would think the acts speak for themselves. Like in personal injury, there is a whole doctrine. I forget what it's called right now, but sometimes something happens and the act speaks for itself. You don't need any other clear intent. But at least the ICJ opinion in 2007 is they needed more, only for this massive massive killing was its appearance what was the real intent that it wasn't self-defense it wasn't targeting military and it was so so egregious because it's a un safe zone how could it possibly be a military target there's literally no weapons there so that is the first case very it's a very landmark case the next case is very similar and it was dismissed right away uh, 1999 croatia files lawsuit against serbia in this case, they're not alleging mass killings, but they're saying, hey, these guys, they displaced our people. Uh, that is ethnic cleansing, and that should be a genocide. And then meanwhile, uh, Serbia said the same thing. They said, well, when the Croatians took our stuff, they displaced our people and expelled them. 
then that should be genocide by the same uh, logic. And for that, the courts, it took until 2015, but the court eventually ruled that, quotes, and this is, I'm just quoting the court, that what is generally called ethnic cleansing does not constitute genocide. It still may be a, a crime, and it still may be part of some genocidal plan, but we need to see intention to physically destroy all or substantial part of the group. And moving people is not going to uh, meet that, that very high evidence. Okay, so that's Croatia v. Serbia. Next, we have the Gambia v. Myanmar. And this is, this is something that both sides in the current case between South Africa and Israel, they keep referencing Myanmar because this is a major uh, precedence. In November 2019, the Gambia uh, files a lawsuit against Myanmar. Now, keep in mind, the Gambia is a country in Africa. Myanmar is a country in Asia. And the allegations that Myanmar is conducting a genocide, there was no allegation that it had anything to do with Gambia and that Gambia was personally affected or harmed. So the point here is the Gambia came to courts uh, in December 2019, uh, and it showed just endless slides and videos of intentional mass killings of peaceful civilians. And it wanted the courts to order Myanmar to cease and desist from a genocide. It said that what the court did for Bosnia when it said, hey, everybody needs to abide by the law, that's not good enough. We need to go a step further to say, hey, you're not abiding by the law. You need to stop the violation. And then when you, you know, make your ruling, you make the ruling. Myanmar came in to say uh, they mostly focused on the technical arguments that Gambia was unaffected and therefore there's no harm to Gambia. Even if it's true, there's no harm to Gambia. And so the case should be dismissed on this, uh, you could say, technicality. So the court ruled the next month, January 2020. This is right before the pandemic. So obviously people were focused about the COVID. But during that uh, panic, the court ruled that the Gambia does have standing. And this is a huge ruling because it kind of was surprising that any country can sue any other country across the world. That's, uh, you know, unusual. But the idea here is that the Genocide Convention makes it clear that your obligations as a country is not just to not commit genocide, but to also take steps to prevent it. And if that means filing a lawsuit against somebody across the world, that's okay, because that will help prevent that genocide if you think there's really a genocide. Uh, but the court did not order any special language. It said both sides need to comply with international law. Both sides need to respect everybody's rights. And when we make a ruling, we'll make a ruling about whether or not there's a genocide. But we're not going to say right now, hey, stop the genocide, because that's, that's um, jumping the gun. That's already making a conclusion that takes... 10, 15 years to really sort out and figure out. And which is way too soon to know that. So it, it issued the same language that it had in the Serbian Bosnian case. And now four years later is January, 2024. There's still no ruling. There's been no update since January, 2020. So people expect that it'll be roughly 15 years. It's just, for whatever reason, that seems to be the, uh, the clock. And these judges are in for nine years at a time. So I don't know what the logic is, but that just seems to be the norm okay one more case it's been 10 minutes i'm already over time but one last case about this because it's a huge precedent for this case in march 2022 i was that when russia invaded ukraine maybe they invaded in february but in march 2022 ukraine uh submitted a case against russia in the icj as well as the icc but for what's relevant here the case in the icj uh picks up on what russia kept saying publicly they kept saying that they had to invade Ukraine in order to stop a genocide against Russians in East Ukraine. And Ukraine disputes this. So when you have a dispute between countries, it goes to the ITJ. 
Russia sends a statement, but no delegation. They didn't really want to attend the hearing, so they just had a, a statement where they said, hey, there's a genocide, therefore it's allowed. And then later in March, uh, March 16, so about two weeks later, the preliminary ruling came out from the ICJ, and it was unique. So the ICJ didn't just say both sides need to respect the law and come back in 15 years and we'll tell you what happens. The ICJ said, while we are making a decision, the state of Russia, or I guess Federation of Russia, needs to immediately cease all military operations in Ukraine until we make our decision. And then, hey, if we decide you can invade, I guess then you can invade at that point. Uh, but they're not going to decide that in all likelihood. In that statement, also, it was an unusually, it was like a 20-page explanation for their statements, which is itself uh, unusual. Usually the court just says what it says and, you know, leaves it at that. In this case, they had a 20-page explanation to explain why the Russian statements, they have these claims of a genocide, but they did not substantiate anything. They just said the conclusion and they did not offer evidence. And that's not... It doesn't give the court anything to work with as far as uh, making a decision, first of all. And second of all, even if Russia had evidence of truly a Ukrainian genocide against the Russians in East Ukraine, even at that point, the ICJ found it doubtful, that's the word they use, doubtful, that the um, genocide convention or Geneva convention would allow Russia to invade a whole other country and then annex a piece of land just because they think there's a genocide. Even if they know there's a genocide, that's not the answer, is essentially what the ICJ said. Uh, there are 17 judges in these cases, so 15 are permanently appointed, and then each side puts one from their side. But the 15 judges disagreed, and they uh, the majority rules. So that, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of background, and I would hate to spend the whole hour just on background, but that is useful context for what this law is, what genocide is on paper, what it is in practice, according to the ICJ how the ICJ works. And now we've got, you know, another half hour to our hours. So we can jump into this actual case. Unless maybe if you want to cut this because there's like four no, minutes. Please okay. Do. So the timeline is something that both sides get into uh, during their presentation. And for anyone who missed out. So basically, South Africa filed a case. They had three hours to present their argument. And the next day, Israel had three hours to present their rebuttal. And I'm trying to summarize the six hours of information into one one hour uh, talk. And it's I just have been watching so many YouTube videos and so many commentaries, so many articles where people summarize all of that into like five minutes. And they're missing they're missing almost everything. They summarize it so generically that it's not actually helpful. So what I want to try to do with our time is to actually go point by point. Here's what South Africa said. Here's what Israel said in response. And we can discuss uh, the strength and weakness back and forth and throw mud wherever we want to throw mud, but at least we know specifically what each side is saying. And both sides get into a timeline. So South Africa says this genocide has been going on since 1948. Um, and then Israel says, well, why don't we start uh, with uh, 1917, the Balfour Declaration saying that this, the mandate for Palestine will be a mandate for the Jewish people. That is, that's a little known fact. So there, what was called the mandate for Palestine the UN, or not the UN, the League of Nations created that in 1920. And the word mandate means there is some order you need to carry out. Literally, the mandate of the mandate for Palestine was to create a Jewish state. So anyway, the parties go back and forth about timeline. Um, but I want to get into just an overview of the timeline generally. So again, 1948, the UK abandons this region. There is no government that it leaves behind, which is unique among the places it left. Like when it left India, there was a government left behind. 
Anyway, for the mandate for Palestine, they leave it. Israel declares independence. There is an invasion from all sides. During this invasion, Jordan, what we now call Jordan, what was then called Transjordan, invaded and seized what was then called Cisjordan. And this is just one of those little known facts. It's worth knowing just for context. When the UK created the country of Transjordan, the idea here was that there is a Jordan River and these guys are trans, these guys are across the Jordan River. There's another area that is Cisjordan, that's like on this side of the Jordan. So when when Transjordan seized Cisjordan, they decided, well, now Trans and Cis, we're all one Jordan. So they, at that point, renamed themselves to Jordan. And oddly enough, right, so they annexed this land. And for the next 20 years that they control the land, there have been no complaints, not in international law and not locally, of an illegal occupation. This is just fine. They annexed it. This is part of Jordan. A-okay. Anyway, not to get into grievances. So uh, Egypt then invades Israel from the south, is pushed back to what is now called Gaza. And then Egypt proceeds to control Gaza until 1967. In 67, Egypt, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, pretty much everyone but Lebanon decides to amass forces on Israel and declare that they are going to invade. They started blocking Israeli shipping. Israel strikes first and overruns the West Bank and Gaza. Now we have complaints about an illegal occupation. In 78, Egypt makes peace with Israel and ends whatever claims it had over Gaza. Ten years after that, Jordan does the same thing. They make peace. They end all claims over the West Bank. And it's called the West Bank, by the way, because it's the West. It's west of the Bank of Jordan. It's the, the Jordan River. That's why they called it West Bank. So where we left off, uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan had controlled these territories. Israel pushed them out. The UN now says there is an illegal occupation of Jordanian and Egyptian lands. Fast forward a few years, uh, 78, Jordan relinquishes claims to West Bank. That's, sorry, that's Egypt relinquishing claims to Gaza. And then 88, Jordan relinquishes claims to the West Bank. But it's still considered occupied because now it belongs to the state of Palestine. So in 1995, Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. This was the group that was considered to represent all Palestinians. So they agree at the Oslo Accords to establish what's known as the Palestinian Authority to formally legally represent all Palestinians and their wishes and their rights and so on. Israel agrees that Palestinians are a, they're a group, they're a nationality, they have a right to self-determination in the West Bank and Gaza, and that Israel will, in time, withdraw from both territories when there is some assurance of safety. So uh, 10 years later, 2005, Israel actually withdraws from Gaza, and at that point, elections are held in a Palestinian authority. It's a big moment. Hamas wins. Um, Fatah was the other party. So Fatah controls the West Bank. They rejected the election results and tried to undo it in Gaza as well, because Gaza was their stronghold, the, the Hamas stronghold. There was a civil war, you could call it that, or a civil unrest. And Hamas basically seized control of Gaza and has been in control of Gaza since then. And since then, uh, and really, really since the late 80s, Iran has been funding Hamas and now they have a huge territory to accept Iranian weapons, except not really because it's been blockaded, but maybe. So the blockade is a big part of the case, too. But the the debate back and forth is that Israel says we're blockading Iranian weapons and things that can be used as weapons. And Hamas says, no, they're just blockading everything and it's a collective punishment. So getting, getting more focused. This is what's been going on since 2005. What else has been going on uh, is Hamas uses those weapons, both... Uh, from Iran and just things that are homemade to launch attacks, to launch raids across the border, through the tunnels, with the rockets, you name it. And the Israeli policy, generally speaking, has been what I believe what they call mowing the grass to where 
The policy is not to reoccupy Gaza. They elected Hamas, they want Hamas, they get Hamas. But the policy will be that when Hamas strikes out of Gaza, the IDF will come in and reduce the arsenal, reduce the rockets, and just mow that grass to where their ability to strike is reduced. But they will not enact regime change. From uh, in 2021, there was a major conflict. Uh, from that point until October 7, 2023, for the first time, Hamas actually was toning down the rhetoric and the violence. It didn't stop. It never stops, but it toned down to a point where Israeli officials were thinking, you know, they might become like Fatah. They might actually be more focused on governing Gaza. So we're going to encourage that. We're going to grant more work permits for Gazans. We will pull away troops from the border with Gaza and just see if this reconciliation or something like it can continue. Uh, then October 7 comes around and it turns out all of this uh, supposed uh, toning down of rhetoric was really just, it was a feign. And this whole time they were amassing drones and uh, paragliders and all kinds of new technology to just hit Israel harder. They waited longer to hit harder in a, in a nutshell. And they had time to do it because while they're not attacking Israel, Israel's not attacking them. So it was a win-win from a Hamas perspective. So on October 7, I mean, it, that's a whole hour to itself. But basically, Hamas broke through the border, uh, through the gates, and they used drones and all kinds of tactics that they learned from the Ukraine war to, to see how they can use low-tech options to defeat a very high-tech IDF. And they basically were launching raids all across the border adjacent to Gaza. A lot of kibbutzim uh, were around there. And it's, it's too much to even get into, but it killed over a thousand Israelis, abducted about 250, all in one day. So this is the most uh, devastating day in Israeli history and in Jewish history generally since the Holocaust. Also since October 7, of course, Israel has been responding. So they uh, kicked Hamas officials from Israel back into Gaza and, and captured many of them as well. And then called up the reservists about 300,000 in a country of only 10 million. They called up, you know, almost... Uh, I think over 300,000 reservists to then move into Gaza. And for the first time, they're abandoning the strategy of mowing the grass and they're shifting to regime change. They're going to remove Hamas and give Gaza back to the Palestinian Authority. And no, no one really knows what's going to happen with Gaza, but that's the generally understood theory for what happens the day after is the Palestinian Authority comes back into control. Why is Siri? Okay, Siri thinks I'm talking to her. So that's what's going on. Uh, December 29 is where South Africa introduces itself into the case, I guess into the conflicts, by filing a case against Israel at the ICJ, 84 pages of a brief accusing Israel of violating the Convention Against Genocide. Okay, January 11, we have a hearing. South Africa takes its uh, giant brief and basically summarizes it in three hours. And then Israel has a rebuttal, also three hours. Now, that was on January 12, now it's January 21. So we are only a week and a half away, roughly. And then the next few weeks or even days, we can expect the ICJ opinion. And there's so many ways it can go. So I think let's, let's get into what the issues are and where it can go. The final decision we can expect to be like 15 years from now. So I don't know what plans you have for 2038. Um, you know, whatever kids we're having now, they'll be maybe at the end of high school at that point, looking to college. And at that point, the ICJ will let us know what it thinks. But for now, what we're looking at is what is the preliminary opinion? Are they going to say end all military operations like uh, South Africa wants? 
are they going to dismiss the case? Like it can go, there, there's a very wide spectrum for where it can go. The first part of this case is jurisdictional. This is the boring part. This is the part where all the so-called experts on international law, they just skip over it. Uh, the best explanation I've heard so far came from two people and they were talking to international law experts. I forgot his name, but there was one person who, a professor, but even he was saying, you know, jurisdiction, I don't understand it. It's technical. Let's just skip that. Uh, but we don't need to skip it. This is actually very straightforward. And I think it's interesting. <laughs> but also, I'm kind of a dork. So I don't know <laughs> if it's really interesting. You just tell me if it's boring or not. So the first part of uh, jurisdiction is standing. Does South Africa even have standing to file this because it's not personally involved in the conflicts? Uh, South Africa says it does because as the court ruled in the Myanmar case, it is required under the Genocide Convention to file this case if it truly believes that there is a genocide because filing the case is how you can prevent that genocide. Now, South of Israel has no issue with that. They basically said that's the Myanmar precedents. It is what it is. That's fine. South Africa has standing to file. But there's two points that the, the Israeli delegation would like to make. First of all, if there is a, a desire to prevent genocide, let's point out that Hamas absolutely committed genocide on October 7. They were intentionally killing uh, non-combatants for their race, ethnicity, religion, or all of the above, or nationality was the fourth one. And therefore, if you want to file this case, go file it against Hamas. They're the ones who are actually committing genocide. And second of all, since, I mean, we all know Hamas is not a state, you can't file it against Hamas. It's, that was more of, I think, rhetorical uh, response. But another response that I think was more uh, powerful and unexpected was that the Genocide Convention doesn't just say, uh, it doesn't just prohibit acts. It doesn't just say you must prevent. It also says you cannot be complicit in genocide. And this is the part where a lot of people didn't like it because Israel went into the facts about how Hamas leadership and the uh, South African leadership, they they have connections. They, they, they uh, host each other. South Africa's leadership has been to Gaza uh, and they hosted a Palestinian solidarity events after October 7 with Hamas officials' presence and their financial ties. There's a lot of ties that go back for a while. Uh, and Israel said, you have these ties with Hamas, the court should order you to to cut these ties because you're being complicit in their genocide. Even if they're not a state and you can't file the case, okay, but you are being complicit by supporting them. And beyond that, since you have these ties, there's very few countries in the world that actually have any direct tie to Hamas. It's really, Israel didn't say this, but to my understanding, it's really just Iran and South Africa and Qatar. I don't think anyone else is dealing directly with Hamas. Uh, well, because there is these ties, the argument is South Africa should do its duty of preventing genocide by leveraging its, its ties and its resources and telling Hamas, hand over the hostages and stop shooting rockets and maybe the war will just end. Once you stop fighting, the war will end. So that was Israel's comeback. Uh, and part of this case, part of what's complicated here and, and unique is in our practice of law in the American side. You have a prosecutor, they give their case in chief, you have a defense, they give their case in chief, and then the prosecutor comes back and they can rebut. They have some time for rebuttal. For whatever reason, that's not how it works in the ICJ. Instead, South Africa had to come in, present its case, and then also anticipate whatever Israel might say. And that's, uh, people have been saying that's kind of not fair. But uh, what I'm pointing out here is South Africa anticipated all kinds of defenses that Israel never actually bothered uh, going down. But they never anticipated this part about how, hey, we need to, what about our ties with Hamas? And are we being complicit? And all that is just sort of, I think it was uh, unexpected.
interesting food for thought for the court. But as far as standing, there is no actual dispute. South Africa has every right to file this case. Maybe they should do more about not being complicit, but that's sort of a whole other thing. For the other half of the jurisdictional arguments, this is getting more technical. I can imagine people want to skip it, get straight to genocide, but it is important. So this is all about establishing that a dispute exists between states. The whole point of the ICJ is to hear disputes between states. And it can dispute, states can dispute, uh, in this case, three things. They can dispute how to interpret some amb ambiguity in the Genocide Convention, or maybe whether or not the Genocide Convention applies at all. Uh, or they can dispute whether or not one of them is violating it. In this case, even South Africa agrees that there is no ambiguity that is at issue. The statute is clear. And there is no dispute about whether or not it applies, because Israel agrees it applies. It applies in war. It applies in peace. There is no point where genocide does not apply, as far as it being illegal. The dispute clearly is whether or not Israel is violating it. Uh, as of today, it's clear that they have a dispute. But what's important in this case, and again, it's getting technical, and I know it sounds silly, but this is important for jurisdictional reasons and for just jurisprudence reasons. So the ICJ rule is that the parties must have established that a dispute exists when the case is filed. And to me, what the reason this the reason this hits me so hard is because I used to take cases not quite like this, but with a very similar rule back in Texas. And I think every state has a rule like this, but there is um, a rule called the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. The idea is that if you suffer some kind of a loss because of a deceptive trade practice like a like a bait and switch, then you are allowed to sue not only for what you lost, but even three times more. And attorneys get their fees separately. It's an amazing law. It makes it very tempting to go after bad businesses. But the reason this is relevant here is because they have a rule. The court has found that, I don't know what the statistics are, but maybe 20%, 15, 25%, a certain percent of cases have a plaintiff filing the case and the business shows up with the evidence and the plaintiff says, oh, never mind, there was it was a misunderstanding. And it's a massive waste of the court's time and resources to just keep dismissing things that they could have resolved. So there's a rule. If you think there is something deceptive going on, you need to tell the business exactly what you think is deceptive and you need to give them 60 days to respond. If they don't respond, that's fine, then file your case. If they do respond and you can't work it out, that's fine, file the case. But in 20 or so percent of the time, maybe less, maybe more, but there is a certain percent of time where you guys talk it out and you realize it's not how it looks. And that saves the court just so much time and resources. So the ICJ has the same exact rule. That's if two states think they have a dispute, they need to actually try to work it out and at least try to talk it out, then bring it here because otherwise you're wasting a lot of time not only of the court, but of yourselves. And it's such a huge spectacle that there is a very real risk that a state could just weaponize it and say, oh, I'm filing a claim against genocide. And the claim falls apart as soon as it starts. But there has already been a huge uh, spectacle. And not to cast any aspersions, but South Africa has a presidential election in May 2024. Some suspect that this is part of just their attempts to, you know, like, hey, vote for us because look what we're doing. We are doing big things in the world court. And for the first time in history, I'm getting into details, but the ANC, the African National Congress, that is their like Republican Party. That's their dominance uh, party. For the first time in their history, they have had less than 50% supports in the polls. People suspect that that would be a very strong pressure to do something big.
whether or not it makes any sense. Do something big and maybe that will rally people around the party. Anyway, I know I'm casting mud. I don't want to cast this person. So South Africa argues as far as the disputes arguments. It makes a number of points. So it says how we made, we the South Africans, we made comments in public from our embassies and also at the UN. We've been saying since October that Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. Uh, and Israel has also made comments in public and at the UN, uh, not directly responding to us, but saying just out loud that no, we are not committing genocide in Gaza. Therefore, a dispute exists. Uh, beyond that, we also emailed Israel, and I say email kind of colloquially, but there are diplomatic cables that country sends by email, but basically they sent the cable on November 10th saying, we think the ICC, again, that's the International Criminal Courts for prosecuting individuals, we think the ICC should investigate the Israeli leadership for genocide, and Israel did not respond, which means, of course, there's a dispute, or at least that we tried to, you know, work it out. And we filed a complaint in the ICC demanding, quote, a vigorous investigation. There was nothing specific to investigate, but just, just investigate vigorously and maybe you'll find something genocidal. And then lastly, we emailed Israel on December 21. According to the South African uh, attorney, it was just a courtesy. We did this courtesy email saying that we think Israel is not complying with the Geneva Conventions and they ignored it. At this point, with, after all the comments and emails, we realized they're never going to respond to us. A dispute clearly exists and uh, about whether or not Israel is violating the convention. Therefore, we actually filed the suits uh, December 29th. That's their case. Israel came in to respond the next day. And it's kind of hard to find because it's a three-hour case and they don't always make, you know, first point first. But I compiled the response as follows. So Israel responds that the ICJ has already made it clear that public comments are not, not responding to public comments is not the same thing as disagreeing with them. If you have a, some comments, you need to send it to the state directly because there are almost 200 states out there. And especially for a high publicity event like the war in Gaza, everybody has their opinion and Israel, no state can be expected to directly respond to every single comment that mentions their name. There's just no way, even at the UN. Uh, Israel pointed out that's on December 21st, well, for one, in the November back and forth about the ICC, South Africa didn't have any specific complaint. They just said the ICC should investigate. And Israel's figured, let them investigate. What is there to dispute? They can investigate if they want to investigate. There is no, there is nothing given to us to dispute is what the Israeli position is. As for the December 21 uh, email. So as a matter of fact, they responded the same day. They said, your uh, message has been received. We're taking it seriously. That's a serious accusation. It has been sent to Jerusalem for the director of foreign ministry to respond to you soon and directly. And then on December 28th, that's the day before the lawsuit, uh, Israel uh, was saying how this director sent this cable back to South Africa, saying that this is very serious and we take it seriously. Let's have a meeting. We can discuss what do you specifically think is genocidal. Maybe we can bring evidence and we can work this out and you can see there is nothing uh, to discuss. There's nothing to be... Uh, I don't know how do you put this, that the claims are unfounded. And so South Africa confirmed receipts of that response. And just to be extra careful, the Israelis also sent a like a courier, like by hand. They wanted to deliver it by hand. So there's no, no, no excuses that they didn't receive it. And the courier was turned away. This is getting into, I know it sounds like, like housewives drama, but this is legally relevant. Courier got to the embassy of South Africa, was turned away, was told that, you know, it's late December, it's a holiday. Come back January 2nd and we'll we'll look into this. 
And lo and behold, South Africa files a lawsuit the next day, deciding basically on its own without this meeting that there is a dispute that exists and there's no way that it can be a misunderstanding. So the Israelis say all this and then conclude that this rule about establishing a dispute, uh, this has to be a good faith effort. This is not about checking off boxes. This is not about courtesies. This is about actually trying to work something out. And if you can't, then you can't file the suits. But if you just check off a box and say, la, 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 and then run off and file the case, there's no way that this is what the ICJ wants from other states when they file their case. And of course, I mean, both sides, I think, in this case want the ICJ. So I think Israel wants the ICJ to say that we looked at it and there's no not even plausible case for genocide. And of course, South Africa wants the opposite. So I don't think either side wants the ICJ to say, oh, uh, they technically didn't establish a dispute. So dismissed. Uh, it feels very much like kicking the can down the road. Surely they will just have their meeting if it's dismissed. Right. They'll have the meeting. South Africa will say we still have a dispute. They'll refile the case. What is the point? Uh, but it does make a very big legal difference that if it's dismissed now and they refile it, let's say next month, the urgency is gone, right? The war is already winding down. Uh, it's already shifted. Troops are getting pulled out. South Africa is resting its case on the idea that this is urgent. There is a people dying every day. We need an order today, right now. Next month, they're really not going to have that, uh, that arguments to make when it's a low intensity conflict with so much more aid coming in. And beyond that, of course, their presidential elections will be even closer. And, you know, they want to use this in the campaign ads. So what use is this if they come to court in March? It's, it's kind of it's, it's losing its importance as far as the uh, political, I don't know, significance for them. So South Africa really wants to not have this uh, get dismissed for lack of a established dispute. But there we go. That's the two sides. We can discuss. I wanted to have a, you know more discussions. Let you, you have... As a person hearing this for the first time, you know, maybe it's, it's more interesting to hear your opinion because I've been thinking about it all week, you know, but that's the case from both sides. Wow, there's so much to break down there. I did not know so much of what you said from the precedence to no. what's being discussed today. What do you think is the most interesting thing that's happened to the ICJ in the last incident between Israel and South Africa? Oh, this is it. I mean, this is the most interesting case that they've gotten ever because it's so there's so much publicity. I, I can imagine maybe the Bosnian case had publicity. Maybe I don't remember because I was two years old. But this one has a lot of hard feelings from both sides. And everybody's talking about international law suddenly. And unfortunately, when people actually take the efforts to make a whole video and have a whole discussion about this, they skip all that jurisdiction because they don't quite understand it and go straight to the meat of the case, the substance. But as lawyers, we know, I mean, the the uh, technicalities are important. And for me, just when I think about my Deceptive Trade Practices Act cases, I've handled cases for uh, consumers, the victims of deception, and I've handled cases for businesses. So I've handled it on both sides. And I just am confident if there was ever a case where someone thinks, let's say, Walmart is being deceptive. So even if you were to give them specificity and say, here's the specific thing I think is deceptive, if you just throw it at them and say, ah, la, 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 and then you file the case, the court will dismiss it every single time because you didn't make any good faith effort to uh, discuss and maybe find that this is a misunderstanding. But I think I just imagine because there's this is such a high stakes case, the 17 judges know very well if they dismiss this for lack of establishing a dispute, there will be riots. I mean, there will be consequences because that is just ridiculous. Nobody has even heard of this. Anyone who's following, uh, no one has even been talking about this. 
So I imagine they will just cut the baby in the middle and they'll say, you know what, ordinarily, this is not enough. And for future reference, any other state that wants to file a case, it's not about courtesies and checking out boxes. You need to really make a good faith efforts. But in this case, due to the urgency and due to the obviousness in hindsight that, yes, there is a dispute, that this meeting is pointless. Okay, we'll hear the case. But for future reference, don't do this again, because this is not how you use the ICJ. I have a feeling that's what the analysis will be. I don't know. Uh, the ICJ it has come under fire many times for taking cases and dismissing them for just any technicality. So they have that very strong institutional leaning towards judicial restraints and towards dismissing. That's why they've only had 191 cases in 75 years. Many cases have been filed and just gotten dismissed for the smallest uh, reasons. So who knows, but I have a feeling for this one, they'll they'll allow some deference just to not spark massive. I mean, the reputation is also at stake. You know, if people are saying, oh, they dismissed it because they're a bunch of Zionists, you know, the court reputation will be in tatters. Uh, so I think they'll have to hear the case and just find a reason why it's obvious there is a dispute, despite South Africa not really doing much to establish that dispute. Okay. Let's say the court rules in favor of South Africa. Yeah. Does Israel have the chance to appeal? I have no idea. I've never heard of any appeal. I think this is it. Because you would think Serbia, all these other countries sort of appeals. But what is the court of appeal? This is sort of the court. And I don't think they they may have some motion to reconsider, but I've never heard of it. Maybe. Uh, I just I don't think that happens because I have never heard of it. And I've been researching. You would think countries would utilize that if they could. Or maybe they do it and it's so boring and technical that no one mentions it. So I, I don't have a, a good answer there, but I don't think there is a mechanism to appeal. There's definitely no mechanism to appeal to a higher court. This is the highest court. Maybe there is a reconsideration, but probably not. That's a let's jurisdictional say, argument. Let's say South Africa rules in favor of uh, the court rules in favor of South Africa. Yeah. And Israel is guilty of genocide. Oh, well, well let's get into it. We got the evidence back and forth, right? So there is intent, there's actions. After all of the uh, arguments about jurisdiction, the majority of the three hours from both sides was about act and, and, and intention. So yeah, let's let's get, let's get into that, right? Because the court at this stage could not, basically the most that the court would do is issue the ruling it issued against Russia to say, stop all military actions. And it's, it's doubtful that this is allowed. Uh, but Russia was not under fire from Ukraine. So there, there's a huge difference. If Ukraine is shooting at Russia, would they still issue the same ruling? Uh, but let's get into intent, right? So both sides focus on intent. They talk a little bit about jurisdiction, a little bit about actions, but both sides agree that intent is where genocide really begins. Uh, without intent, what you have is some, some lesser crime. So, and again, so the standard here is it needs to be plausible. Uh, later on, South Africa can prove convincingly that it's, it's going on. At this stage, they just need plausibility. So it's actually a low standard. Although the court has only found one thing to ever be genocidal, the Srebrenica massacre. So it sounds like a low standard, but maybe it's not as low as, as we think to be plausible, uh, for intents to be plausible. Uh, and then just the other reminder, the court is looking for policy or plans that that combatants are systematically implementing. The comments from one person or another is, is maybe useful, maybe not. But it's really the systematic plan of action. That is what we call intents as far as a state is concerned because a state has no thoughts in its head. So South Africa has two kinds of evidence. They have what they call the nature, the, the character 
of Israel's military actions. And then they have quotes from various Israelis uh, in the governments, outside of the governments, uh, former governments, maybe military. There was one guy who was a wedding singer. There was another guy who was 95-year-old man yelling out of the window of his car. That is all evidence about the intent of the state of Israel. We'll get into it. To start with the military actions, so this is where I'm I'm, I'm on the lookout for evidence like Srebrenica, something that the court has already recognized. Because as lawyers, we know, we like precedents. We want to compare this to whatever has already been called a genocide in the past. So if there is some proof that, for example, there's maybe some checkpoints for Palestinian civilians and they, they congregate and they come there for safety and the IDF just ambushes them over and over and over. Or if there is something more like Srebrenica where there is like, what is that, Khan Muli? There's different cities in the Gaza Strip. If there is some incident where uh, it's like a safe zone and the IDF surrounds it and just starts shelling the whole city and then runs through it and just executes thousands of uh, men and boys. That would that would sound very much like precedence. That's the kind of evidence that I'm on to look out for. Like, does that South Africa have that? The evidence South Africa had were more, they were general stats. So South Africa mentions 70% uh, of Palestinians have been displaced. 23,000 have been killed. Uh, Israel has intentionally targeted civilian infrastructure like schools, like hospitals. And it sounds like I'm summarizing, but that really is the entirety of the South African case is basically those stats with some more explanation about the stats. And stats are good. I mean, the stats are powerful. It's more than nothing. But Israel responds. Uh, it has a very lengthy response because intent, again, is the main thing in this case. So first of all, Israel's main response is that this is about framework. We are, South Africa is looking at this through the perspective that Israel out of the blue is just bombing civilians. There's no military conflict. There's no war. But the reality is that there is a war and it complies with the Geneva Conventions, which takes all of international law and then uh, narrows it down. Geneva Conventions uh, has far fewer prohibitions than international law generally because it's understood in a wartime environments, the rules are different. It's not a situation with no rules as it used to be in the ancient world, but it, there are fewer rules uh, that South Africa seems to just forget that this is a wartime environment. Um, and South Africa does briefly argue that technically it's an occupation and therefore because there's no no state of Palestine, this is not like state on state violence. This is like police versus gangs. Hamas is just a gang and therefore they don't explicitly say this, but what they're trying to say is Hamas is just the Palestinian people. If they're doing anything wrong, then the Israeli police should come and serve the, you know, knock on the door and have their arrest warrants. This is no different than like MS-13. They don't say that, but that's what they're getting at. And then Israel responds that, that that's absurd. Uh, Hamas is what they call an organized armed group in the law of war. And an organized armed group is, is this, it's a combatant. It's the same as any soldier. It's a combatant. And therefore, yes, it's allowed to attack with military force against an organized armed group. So that was a slight uh, uh, tangent. So but yeah, but Israel's getting into the reality here is that there is a war. Hamas started it and they are prosecuting this war as we speak. Every day they fire rockets indiscriminately and they still have over 100 hostages. So compare this to any other country. You take 100 Canadians and then you say, oh, you know, you can't target us. How can you target us? You are actively at war with Canada if you have 100 citizens being held hostage. Under international law, the Israeli delegation points out, yes, we've attacked uh, buildings that were like schools, mosques, hospitals, things like that. Under international law, these buildings are protected. You cannot attack them 
But South Africa forgets to mention that it's also forbidden to use those buildings for military purposes. Once you do that, the reason it's a war crime to use these sensitive buildings for military purposes is because it removes that protection. Now it's no longer a civilian building. It maybe it used to be a school, but now it's a military garrison because you're using it for military purposes. And so that is a major part of the Israeli response is to bring into perspective, I guess, to zoom out and point out, this is not just us dropping a bomb on a school for no reason. This is in the context of a war where that school is being used for military purposes, whether it's to shoot rockets out of, stockpile rockets in, maybe there was a tunnel underneath it. And uh, a lot of times Israel will destroy a tunnel and then two blocks away, a school collapses because the tunnel was the tunnel is collapsing and all these infrastructure are collapsing uh, with the tunnel. And so Israel provides slideshows, videos to just show all the times Hamas is using all these uh, infrastructure as evidence that, yes, yes, we're targeting the infrastructure, but that doesn't make it either a war crime or a genocide, because there is that greater context of they were using it to attack and it, there is a right to self-defense. Now, if there is some argument that the use of military force is harming civilians too much, that's an argument. And that's called disproportionate use of force. That's a Geneva Convention violation, but it's not genocide. That's a genocide is a whole separate uh, offense. There is a whole other argument that South Africa could argue, like Srebrenica massacre, like the IDF is attacking truly civilian objects, no connection to Hamas. And they can make the argument, but they need to substantiate it, like the, the court ruled with Russia. Russia came in and said, yes, there's a genocide of Russians. That's how we have to fight. But they never substantiated it. Uh, this is a court of law. You need to bring evidence. You can't just make a claim and leave it at that. That's the Israeli response in a nutshell. They did get into more specifics uh, about, for example, displacements. 70% or 80% of Palestinians have been displaced. Extensive damage to civilian infrastructure. That's all factually true. That's a true statistic. But within that statistic, you have to remember, and, and Israel, the, their delegation showed just a, a whole slideshow of videos of Hamas booby-trapping buildings and setting off these buildings. So uh, yes, there is extensive damage, but how much of that is from airstrikes and how much of that is from Hamas tunnels falling or Hamas booby-trapping buildings and intentionally destroying their own buildings in order to create a catastrophe? Because and then also there is 2000 Hamas rockets, as far as the IDF has been tracking that they track every single rocket, of course, they found that 2000 of these rockets out of maybe 10,000 so far that have been launched, have either malfunctioned or fallen short, and they fall into Gaza and Gaza is, as you can imagine, very heavily, it's one of the most densely packed areas in the world. When a rocket falls, yes, it will also destroy a building. So yes, there has been extensive damage. But how much of that comes directly from Hamas? That's that's very relevant for these judges. If they say 70% is too much, that may be, but you need to include the fact that Hamas contributed 20% or 30 or you know who knows exactly how much. That really muddles the case. If Hamas was not a terrorist organization, this would be an easier case. If they never used civilian objects, if they never booby-trapped civilian objects, it would be an easier case to say, oh, clearly it's only Israeli airstrikes destroying all these buildings as far as uh, hospitals. So again, if it's being used for military purposes, it's no longer just a hospital. Despite that, Israel's position has been that they've never directly attacked a hospital. Even if they think it's being used for military purposes, they will bring troops in, they will dismantle any Hamas infrastructure, and then they will leave. And the hospitals have been damaged through a crossfire, maybe by the IDF, maybe by Hamas, because of a nearby firefights 
but that Hamas or that hospitals are off targets as far as airstrikes are concerned. And they had an interesting stat that I, no one has mentioned since then, but they said that every hospital that they have investigated has had Hamas weapons, bombs, or some infrastructure that they've had to dismantle. And they bring like BBC journalists, they bring journalists from around the world in order to anticipate the argument that, oh, they're just planting evidence. There's no way Hamas would do that. They bring the journalists, they live stream it to make it clear that Hamas has used this area. For the deaths, 23,000 is, of course, an enormous amount. And they pointed out the death of any one peaceful civilian is a tragedy. But Hamas openly admits that when it counts deaths, and this figure is from Hamas, it includes uh, combatants and non-combatants. It just includes everyone. And so this is something Israel didn't mention, which I don't know why, because it's, I think, useful. But in the past conflicts like 2021, 2014, even according to the UN, the death tolls in those figures, usually it's about 50% of them being Hamas fighters. And that's relevance. It's not a crime to kill Hamas fighters while they're shooting at you. Um, another thing that no one mentioned, but I just saw it yesterday, in May 2022, so this is right before the October attack, the UN has a meeting to discuss armed conflicts and civilian deaths in armed conflicts and what is the ratio. And they found that on average, 90% of the casualties in armed conflict worldwide are civilians. It's a ratio of like nine to one. For every combatant killed, you have nine civilians. And they said it's a tragedy and we need to do something about this. And of course, nine to one is not like a goal anybody should have, but it gives you some perspective of what's actually the norm worldwide versus what's happening here where it's most likely 50-50. And Israel didn't mention it, but I mean, I imagine the judges are aware of what the UN has ruled. Uh, we, we've got like two minutes, so maybe <laughs> I can get right into the second part was about the quote. So they quote many Israeli officials. They quote Netanyahu talking about Amalek. They quote the defense minister saying there will be no food, no fuel in Gaza. Uh, they quoted a very angry old man who rolled down the window of his car and said truly the worst genocidal thing. The worst comment in this whole evidence came from the old man who has nothing to do with anything. But they were basically saying that, see, this is what's on the mind of the public. This is what the leaders are saying. Therefore, this is the policy of the Israeli government. The Israeli response is that we have a chain of commands. All these people, not all, but most of these people you quoted outside the chain. These are people are shouting from the peanut gallery. They have nothing to do with the war. What they say is terrible, uh, but we have freedom of speech for one. And for two, many of them are being investigated for inciting genocide. If they if their comments go way over the line, it is not allowed to incite genocide. We're already investigating that. But for the actual decision makers, they've made it clear over and over that the target is Hamas and not the people of Palestine. That, that, the, that we need to build field hospitals, and they already built field hospitals. We need unimpeded aid. We need humanitarian aid. There will be no resettlements. Basically, they quote all of this. I think we're almost right out. That's Brandon, the case. You know, I wish the state of Israel hired you to send you to The Hague to join the delegation. It would they be experts. They, they will hire you one day. And I hope that when the ICJ comes out with its preliminary opinion around the corner from now, we can hop on a call okay. again and Absolutely. you can share your opinion. And maybe they'll cite this podcast for their reasoning. They'll cite us in a footnote, maybe. Uh, you are a true gem for this community. And thank you so much, Gurney, for sharing. I just feel bad. I feel like I took over the podcast, you know? No, the, the podcast <laughs> is here to give you a platform to share all okay. of your insights and knowledge. If I remember this right, you were asking questions that were more 
hypotheticals of what happens if that's and what happens if this. And I was saying, as all lawyers say, well, it depends and we need more facts. We need incidents to look at for specificity. And since then, the uh, South African government has done us the favor of compiling every fact it could find, every incidents it could find towards at least one accusation. And they filed that case. And now we have specifics that we can talk about and analyze. Break it down for us. Okay, what I'll break it down. Please. So it takes a lot of background. Uh, I want to start with just a broad overview. And then if I'm getting too much into it, I like CLEs. So I'm in the CLE mentality. If it's getting too much background, you can just tell me and we'll jump into the case. But generally what the lawsuit is, uh, it's a claim that Israel's military actions in the Gaza Strip are violating the Convention Against Genocide. So last time we spoke, I forgot when, it seems like, like years ago, but last time we spoke, we were talking about the Geneva Conventions. This is a whole other convention, the Genocide Convention, which is expanding on those Geneva Conventions. What South Africa is asking for is an interim order from the court. It wants a ruling in general, but for now, immediately, it wants a preliminary order that will end all Israeli actions in Gaza and order Israel to, quote, cease and desist from genocide. That's the remedy. So just a little background about the courts. This is where we are. It's the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. It was created in roughly 1920, technically, uh, under the League of Nations. And then 1945, it was revamped under the UN. And the point of this court is to resolve disputes between the UN member states, if they both agree to go to the courts. What the court can do is declare a violation of international law. It can order reparations from the state that's violating the law. And it can order states to take actions to come back into compliance with international law. As is often the case, uh, the court is just ignored. But even when it's ignored, it is a massive hit to a country's reputation and to its diplomatic efforts. If the court is saying, for example, you're committing genocide or any other offense, that is just a massive black mark to the states. And if it is violating the court orders, the court can't do anything, but the UN Security Council can follow up on that. This court belongs to the UN, and the UN has a strong interest in making sure that states are complying with its orders. So the UN could authorize sanctions, it could authorize armed force, it could authorize really a lot, but as soon as the UN Security Council is allowing states to you know, go to war with you, that's already a pretty severe penalty. So I just have seen so many commentators saying, it doesn't matter what the court says, it can't enforce the actions. There is no court that can, but there is an executive, the UN Security Council, which can enforce those uh, decisions. And also, if it's ignored or not, the decision will shape the narrative of a conflict. And the narrative is so important in a, a age of, an age of social media. It's all about narrative. That is almost even more important than the reality. So it's an important case. That is why Israel did respond to it. Oftentimes, Israel just sort of says, we're not getting into it. We're not dealing with the ICC and whatnot. Or the ICJ, for I think one of the first times, Israel actually sent a delegation and addressed it in detail what is going on. Now, I mentioned the ICC. There is a whole other courts uh, also sitting in the Netherlands, in The Hague, with the ICJ. But the International Criminal Courts is a separate UN courts. It prosecutes specific individuals for international crimes. So we got two courts. Uh, the issue with uh, the invasion of Ukraine exemplifies the difference. So you have an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin specifically. That came from the ICC. Then you have a dispute between Ukraine and Russia about the legality of that invasion. That's at the ICJ, because that's a state-on-state -state dispute. 
as opposed to an individual. That's the background about the court and uh, why we're at the ICC or at the ICJ instead of ICC and what the ICJ does and what it could do in this case. Um, in this case, we have just one law that South Africa wants to focus on, which makes it a lot easier for us to just laser focus on one area. And it is the Convention Against Genocide. So I think it helps to go back to where this law started. May 1948, uh, the United Kingdom is in the mandate for Palestine and it just, it leaves. It, has, it doesn't have a replacement. It just leaves and figures the locals will sort it out. And sort it out, they did. Israel declared independence. As soon as they left, it's invaded from all sides. After a year, by May 1949, this invasion is grinded down to a stalemate. There's a ceasefire and the, Israel joins the UN, becoming, uh, fun fact, the 60th member of the UN. I didn't know this until I was prepping for this uh, podcast, but I was trying to figure out what, what number is Israel in the UN? Because it's one of the first countries. When the UN was created, there was maybe 30 countries in the UN. Anyway, so this is 1949. At the UN, Israel signs a number of conventions, like the Geneva Conventions, where there is a, a phrase in the Geneva Conventions. It says, here's a list of crimes that are not just war crimes, but these are grave offenses against the law of war. Meaning it's, these are everything that violates Geneva Conventions is a war crime, but these offenses are the worst of the worst. And as you can imagine, genocide is listed in there. And this is a new word. It was just defined recently by, I, I forgot his name, but I believe Mr. Limpkin. There was a, a Jewish lawyer who wanted to put a name to what the Nazis did in the Holocaust. They called it genocide. The problem is the Geneva Conventions, it just says genocide is a grave war crime and it leaves it at that. And you have no idea, but what is a genocide? So the Genocide Convention uh, represents all these countries coming together to try to put a definition to this word because without a definition, it's just a meaningless uh, ideal. So in the Genocide Convention, it takes this word and it, it works on it. It gives it a definition and it makes it clear that genocide is not just a war crime, it's just a crime. Whether war or peace, it's forbidden. And that's where we are now. We have the Genocide Convention uh, as the basis of this case against Israel. What is forbidden in the Genocide Convention are four kinds of conducts. So everyone assumes, of course, the genocidal acts are forbidden, of course. Uh, but the convention is a little broader. E even complicity in genocide, attempts at genocide, even incitement to genocide on a state level, forbidden. If an individual does it, maybe the ICC would get into that. But if a state does it, that's where we get into the ICJ and the grounds of a violation, potentially. And it defines genocide. This is the most important part. What even is genocide? It has, to me, it has a three-part definition. Some people say two, it's just whatever you want. I see three. There has to be genocidal conduct, which already, you're not supposed to use a word in its own definition, but this is, this is what it is. So a genocide is genocidal conduct, first of all, carried out with genocidal intent, second of all. And third, it has to affect a protected group. So, and feel free to, if I'm taking too long or I'm getting too much into it, feel free. But I like to work it backwards because... There's so much to get into here, but a protected group is the most straightforward part of this definition. You have four kinds of groups. You have nationalities, ethnicities, races, religions. If you have a set of victims who are targeted because of their real or perceived membership in one or more of those groups, then you have that third element uh, being satisfied. 
So to me, it's like a hate crime. If I go outside right now and I assault someone, that is a regular crime. That's assault, it's battery, it could be a number of things. But if I did that because I have a hateful intent in my head, and I just hate all Japanese people, hypothetically, I don't, I'm, hypothetically, now it's a hate crime and now it's a much worse offense. It's, it's an aggravated offense in the criminal code. And in the same way, in wartime, it's already forbidden to intentionally target a peaceful civilian. In other words, a non-combatant. It's already forbidden. But if you do that on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, now it's like a hate crime. It's, it's a war crime. It's not, not a war crime. It's genocide. It's a much more severe violation. It's considered the crime of crimes. As they said in this, uh, both sides in the uh, court case have mentioned, this is the crime of crimes. It's the ultimate crime. And uh, it's a severe accusation. Now, there are certain defenses. Just like in a hate crimes case, you'll have, you'll, you'll see defenses like, yes, I attacked this person, but it was, uh, it was at random. I didn't even know he's Japanese. Everything I said about those people in the past, coincidence, I was just, I was in a blind rage and I was punching whoever was my closest target. People say also for a defense that it was unintentional. Maybe there's a shootout, police and robbers and someone gets hit. Uh, they're not being targeted because of their race or so on. They're, they're, they're just there and it's an accident. There is also the defense of, I did target this person. It was intentional. There's no accidents, but I did it because of their membership, real or perceived, in an unprotected group. Like, for example, they're soldiers and it's a war. And uh, military groups, as you can imagine, are not protected groups as far as the genocide convention or Geneva Convention. There is another common defense of this person belonged to a political group. This person was, for example, China has, um, we could say it has beef with the Falun Gang. That's one group. Or there are so many groups we can think of that are political groups. Um, and actually, just interesting backstory. And this is where we might start getting into rabbit holes, so feel free to stop me. But I thought it was interesting. Originally, political groups were going to be included as one of the five protected groups that you cannot target politicians or people for their political beliefs, that's genocide. But then the USSR, because remember it's 1950, USSR said, we will not sign that. And we will make sure that nobody in our satellites communities in East Europe and Asia, we will not sign that. And so the UN said, all right, well, in that case, political groups, fair game, but everyone else, ethnicity, race, religion, nationality, that's protected. So South Africa's case, I think in a broad nutshell, and I want to get into the specific arguments because everyone likes to summarize. But I think the basic summary of the logic of their case is that as far as the protected group element goes, they first want to argue basically that even a military targets can meet the definition of genocide. If you attack even a purely military target, if you're doing so with hateful intents, even if no civilians are harmed, that's still a genocide. Um, and the idea basically is that you're attacking this target, you're claiming it's because it was a military target, but really that's just a pretext to exterminate the race that uh, is comprised of this military group. Because Hamas, as you can imagine, it's 100% Palestinian. I don't think they have a lot of non-Palestinians in Hamas. So South Africa, it never quite says it explicitly, but this is my takeaway. When they're coming to the protected group issue, I think they're trying to say that Hamas counts as just the Palestinian people. Um, it's it's a stretch. It's basically asking the courts to rewrite the Geneva Conventions to where attacking a purely military target, like in, in the Geneva Conventions, if you have a military necessity and you distinguish between civilians and combatants, 
if you use force proportionally and you're not using chemical weapons, biological weapons, all kinds of inhumane weapons, that's the four-part analysis that to think about. And intention is not part of that analysis. You want to make sure the intends to spare civilians and minimize damage and all of that intents. But as far as attacking a tank, uh, whether or not you hate the people in the tank is just something that, as far as law of war, it's just not even a consideration. But it seems like the argument here is it should be, and that maybe it is a violation of the Genocide Convention. Because interesting part of the Genocide Convention, so the way it's written, it doesn't say anything about war. It just says, don't target these four targets in war or peace. So there is some ambiguity. And I imagine maybe some of the 17 judges, there's a lot of judges on this case, they might be grappling with that question of, here's these two conventions. One is for war, one is for war and peace. And there's a lot of overlap. So what do we do if there is some ambiguity, maybe some conflicts, which one will prevail? Um, I think we can anticipate it from at least one judge out of the 17. Now, it, putting that aside, so that's kind of a stretch. I don't think the judges will rewrite the Geneva Conventions. It's not their job to rewrite law as much as interpret it. The other argument, essentially, is that the conflict in Gaza is so disproportionate and the attacks on military targets are affecting civilians just so severely that that should count as genocide. Uh, just widespread destruction should become evidence of genocide. That's the argument in a nutshell uh, as to protected groups and how Hamas figures into that idea of, is it protected, is it not, is it a military group or political group, or is it just the people, the, the Palestinian people? Okay, I'm running out of breath. So the, the next part is intense. We were getting into the protected group. If I'm talking too fast, let me know, because I, I tend to talk way too fast. Uh, and I know we only have an hour and we have so much to get into, but the next part is intense. So this is unique to genocide. I don't know that this is the only crime in international law with specific intents, but it's one of the only ones to where we have a subjective analysis about what is going on in the heads of the perpetrator. Typically, it doesn't matter how you feel about your victims. If you intentionally targets a non-combatant, that's already a crime, whether you love them or hate them. It was that intent to target. That's the problem. In the genocide convention, the problem is more about why did you target them? Was it hateful or was it some other reason, any other reason besides intent to destroy the group in whole or in part. That's the specific intent that we're looking for in the state actor or from the ICC in the individual actor. Specific intent to destroy in whole or in parts. And up until a few days ago when I was researching for this podcast, I assumed this means even the death of one uh, non-combatant could be genocide. Even one person is part of the protected groups. But as I looked into it, the case law from the ICJ and ICC makes it more apparent that it needs to be a substantial part. So one person is ultimately, it can be terrible, it can be a war crime, it can be a number of things, but this is the crime of crimes, this is the ultimate. So you need to have some evidence that a substantial portion of a group is either being destroyed or at least that's the attempt. What is substantial, nobody knows, but it's not one person. Okay, now, uh, if there is mixed intent, let's say you are acting in self-defense, you hate a group, but you're also acting in your own self-defense, or you have extreme hatred for a group, but what you're doing is dispersing them, or removing them from an area, or engaging in what they call cultural destruction. It's called cultural genocide. ICJ prefers the term cultural destruction. None of that would meet the definition of genocide 
according to the ICJ. This is not my opinions. The ICJ case law really wants to distinguish between a number of really terrible things and the crime of all crimes, genocide. Uh, lastly, for the case law about intents, one major factor for the ICJ is that they put a distinction between the intents of one individual, whether it's a soldier, prime minister, or anyone else. They have intent in their own heads, and in the ICC, that's important. In the ICJ, we're talking about the intent of a state, and there's no one person who has the thoughts of a state. The state does not have thoughts. But what the state does have is a systematic plan or a policy, some kind of a systematic, they call it plan or policy. If there is something that everybody is doing systematically, that indicates the so-called intents of the state. So in some cases, like, uh, I don't want to keep getting off track, but I think it's a good example with China. China is accused of carrying out a genocide of Uyghurs. Those are uh, Muslims living in Western China. And we can get into details maybe if we have time. But the point is, Chinese officials, at least to my knowledge, they have a lot of discipline as far as messaging. They don't say anything genocidal or hateful about Islam or about the Uyghurs. And yet from the uh, actions on the ground, just from the consistent, widespread policy being implemented in what was formerly the Uyghurs country, East Turkestan, I believe, East Turkmenistan, they have an area in the West. What's being implemented there, to me, ICJ would say, this is clearly a policy. This is not sporadic. It's not an accident. It's not unintentional. There is some policy being implemented, and that will tell us what is the intent of the state, even if the state never said anything explicit for us. And of course, you can say the same with the Nazis. They, they made their intent very explicit through their uh, statements. So that goes into intent. And the last part is where we began with the actual genocidal act. What is a genocidal act? So the convention lists five kinds of acts, which thankfully makes it much more straightforward than intent. Intent is kind of a vague idea of a plan. But for actual conduct, the five kinds are killing, of course, killing, mass killing would be genocidal but also serious bodily harm uh, or mental harm, imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group in whole or substantial part, systematically preventing a substantial amount of births from that group, and forcibly transferring children out of the group. So for the last one, uh, basically South Africa claims Israel is doing all of that besides the last one for kidnapping. That's actually the case against Putin specifically with the ICC, they filed their uh, arrest warrants because they're saying that Russia is abducting, I forget how many tens of thousands of Ukrainian children out of Ukraine into Russia to help them forget their heritage. So that's an example of what would be an act of genocide. In this case, we have everything but that, according to South Africa. So that's generally, that's what the law is. Um, I, can, I can go on it forever. I just don't want it to be a monologue. That would be kind of boring for a podcast. I'm happy to take questions and, and make it more conversational. That's the basis. That's the, the floorboard for where we are. And the rest is just a matter of analyzing whether all or some of that is actually at issue. Wow. So, could do it. Yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> what time? We got, I went into 20 minutes. I want to be cognizant of not going way over time.
to say. I appreciate it. It's good to be back. I feel bad that I'm probably in the same outfit for the third time in a row, but maybe it'll help you focus on the words and not the speaker. It's the same outfit every time. Well, yeah, so this happened just yesterday. So if anyone is, is catching up, just yesterday, uh, Friday, January 26th, the court released its opinion. And it it pretty much starts off where we left off in our last session. We were talking about the history of the courts, the history of genocide and how it's defined and how it's developed in case law and the history of both sides between Israel and Hamas, the territory that is now at issue. So we have all the background now. Um, and we were getting into what exactly was South Africa accusing Israel of, what is the basis of genocidal intent and action. Um, and we finished a little early, but the court ended up not even focusing so much on actions and intents. And it focused a lot more on exactly what we covered, which is what the court's recent opinions were in Serbia, Croatia, um, uh, Gambia, and Russia. So it's fantastic. Now we can you know, focus on exactly what we were talking about anyway. And the court opinion was 29 pages. It was fairly short, uh, relatively speaking. So there's not too much ground to cover and it'll allow more room to discuss, have a dialogue and reflect on the very small handful of things that the court actually did. So if we want to overview it, uh, the opinion starts off as most court opinions. It overviews what is the case about. It overviews that South Africa filed this case claiming genocide, uh, specifically in Gaza. And South Africa requests a certain number of things that the court order ahead of time. Naturally, South Africa wants a ruling on the merits in 15-ish years uh, saying that there was a genocide. But until then, what South Africa wants immediately is an order. Uh, there was a number of things, but the main two things are that first, Israel must uh, basically have a ceasefire. Israel must cease all military operations. And second, that it must like cease and desist. It must stop any further genocidal acts. That's what the language that South Africa wanted. And it's language that is not coming out of thin air. This is the language that the court used in its previous genocide case with Russia, where the court ordered Russia to immediately cease all military operations in Ukraine. Um, although the second part about cease and desist, the court has never uh, actually ordered that. It's been requested many times to say cease and desist from genocide, uh, but it keeps refusing to do it because to say that is to already hint that you've made a decision, that there is a genocide and you must stop. And the court just does not want to do that at an early stage because there is a fog of war. You don't know fully what's happening. And it would be jumping the gun for the courts, especially the world courts, to tell one side, you're guilty, stop it. And then in 15 years, we'll explain why. You know, Because what if, what if it's not true? Then you've uh, put a huge dark cloud on a whole country for 15 years, only to say, oh, never mind, we jumped the gun. Sorry about that. So uh, in this case, uh, well, you know what? I'll start point by point. That's what the court started with, overviewing what South Africa wants. And then the court overviewed some procedural history, just saying, okay, South Africa filed December 29. And then we notified the UN Secretary General. We notified Israel. We let both of them appoint a judge because we have a panel of 15 judges their permanence, uh, not permanence, but every nine years they're, they're there. Uh, and they represent like Uganda, France, mm, let's see, I think England was there, the US is there, they represent a number of countries. But because South Africa and Israel are not represented, they're allowed to bring their own judge. So this is the boring part of the court opinion. It's just getting into the technicalities of why the panel looks how it looks. And at that point, the court set some dates for oral arguments. We went over the oral arguments uh, last week. 
and the court was, you know, just identified who came and what they argued briefly. So the real opinion, the actual meat of the court opinion starts with October 7. It overviews the Hamas attack, not in much detail, but it just says generally uh, 1,200, about 1,200 Israelis were killed. Uh, more than 250 were abducted back into Gaza. And as a result, Israel began a large scale military operation against Hamas. Uh, and that operation is also causing extensive casualties and destruction. And the court is acutely aware of the extent of the human tragedy. So here's one point, um, even before we jump any further. Uh, one point here is, first of all, the ICJ agreed with, um, there was a part in, in this case uh, where South Africa said that the relevant timeline does not begin on October 7, it begins in 1948 or in 2005, or you know it goes way back. And that as terrible as uh, uh, Hamas's attack was, it was provoked in a sense because of all these past uh, conflicts. And then the Israeli side came up and said, well, why are we going to 1948? Why don't we go to 1917, where the UK, which was put in charge of this region, was put in charge in order to create a Jewish state. Why don't we go there? Why don't we go back to biblical times? So anyway, there's a little bit of a tit for tat about where exactly do we start the timeline. And the first words of the courts in this case, as far as the substance of its decision, is that the timeline starts on October 7. We're not going back into prehistoric times. We're not going back to World War II era. Hamas attacked Israel out of the blue. Israel was not doing anything to Gaza. The court didn't say all that, but uh, that's the timeline that it gave, that Hamas launches this attack. Um, doesn't say unprovoked, but it's implied that nothing happened. It just launched this attack. And that's a small point for Israel to say, you know what, thank you. At least we have that uh, that we can agree on, that we, we don't want to make excuses for an attack that has no excuse. It's not allowed to target civilians. It's not allowed to abduct civilians. Uh, no matter what the motivation is, it's just never allowed. So that's one point. And the other point is something that's been taken very much. I mean, this is a very politicized case. So uh, in so many articles that I saw about this decision, it was saying that, oh, the court said it's acutely aware of the extent of human tragedy in Gaza. And this is uh, a big uh, insult to Israel. Uh, and in reality, the court's like first paragraph or two where it says, here's what happened in Israel, here's what happened in Gaza. The court is aware of what's going on on both sides. It's a tragedy on both sides. And that was the court's way of extending, I think, like an olive branch to both sides, saying this is this is a lot for both of you, and we appreciate that. And now we're going to address what has been going on. So that's just an initial opening observation. And this court, basically, this court has a case right now, which is maybe the most contentious case that it's ever gotten. It's had genocide cases before, but when you have Russia versus Ukraine, the entire world basically is on Ukraine's side. When you have Bosnia and, uh, well, let's see, let's see, Bosnia and Yugoslavia, the entire world was on Bosnia's side. These cases were not uh, like 50-50, whereas uh, the case right now, you really have uh, the really the Western world, especially the U.S., pushing hard for Israel and so much of the rest of the world pushing hard for South Africa. And the court can't just, I mean, it could, but it would be very practically difficult if the court just says, we're here to say that South Africa did not provide a case. It didn't prove its points, dismissed. Or even worse, to say, well, South Africa technically didn't prove standing, dismissed. Uh, people would be furious. There's a lot, there are a lot of major countries that have very strong and compelling interests in this case in either way. Um, and by the same logic, the court didn't want to just say, you know what, Israel, you are committing genocide. This is, you know, we're going to give South Africa everything it wants. 
because it would it would just differ so dramatically from all of the court's precedents that it would lose uh not not respect it would lose its yeah ooh, i don't even know what the word is but if the court were to just randomly depart from all possible precedents countries would no longer feel comfortable filing a case in this court because they have no idea what it's going to do the whole point of precedent is that countries can have some sense of here's what the court will do because here's what it's done uh but at the same time if the court tells the whole side uh, you know palestinians there is no genocide. Uh, we're just going to dismiss on the technicality. That will be a signal to essentially the whole developing world that this is just this is just the Zionist court. We don't care. We will find excuses to dismiss things we don't like. So the court wanted to try to, uh, I think, you know, I, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I think what was really compelling in most judges was to find some solution that doesn't give either side everything it wants, but at the same time gives both sides something that they like. And when the court released its opinion, you saw on both sides, uh, the uh, Hamas and Palestinian foreign ministry were both saying how this was an excellent opinion and the courts, maybe it didn't go far enough, but it, you know, it recognized some important things. And then meanwhile, Netanyahu also gave a speech saying this, this court decision was, uh, it was important, it was good, it didn't go quite far enough, they should have dismissed, but still, because it didn't do really anything South Africa wanted. It was a step in the right direction. So that helped, I think, tone things down. I even noticed on Facebook in the past day or two, the rhetoric, the the vitriol has kind of toned down and the court, I think, did a, a good job in that sense. If that's what they were going for, uh, then it was a success. But let's get into the opinion. So it goes into this, you know, this is the timeline. And now the court, of course, addresses jurisdiction. Every court, the first thing on its mind is jurisdiction. This is the part where I'm wondering, like, what, what, what do we do here? Because we're also in a pickle. You don't want countries, like I was saying last week, to just send off a, a um, courtesy email and then immediately file the case. You want countries to have some good faith dialogue. And if there's a disagreement, that's okay. That's what the court is for. But you don't want countries rushing to court, assuming there is uh, disputes, if there is none. Uh, and as with every part in this case, the court first reiterates what both sides argued in depth. It's like a, it's a really each point is summed up. So the court really did what I tried to do last week. It just summed up every point from each side and then gave its opinion. And we covered this extensively last week, so I don't need to rehash it. I know time is, is limited and we want to move on to the more interesting parts of the opinion. The point here is in a nutshell, the court found it convincing that when it came to the official statements from both sides, South Africa, Israel, at the UN, they didn't ever speak directly to each other. They never said, I disagree with, with what South Africa just said, but they both spoke at the same meeting. South Africa said there's a genocide. Israel said there's not. Uh, that The court found that persuasive. The court also found it persuasive that both sides published documents on their foreign ministries uh, websites. Again, taking opposite positions. South Africa says there's a genocide. Israel says there is not. There is no direct exchange, but the court said it, the court doesn't need a direct exchange. You can tell from these positions there is a disagreement. There is nothing. There is no chance of uh, of a misunderstanding. So, uh, all of the back and forth about well, they sent an email and we sent it back and they didn't. They didn't care. And ultimately, the court had no interest in the emails because the official statements were enough. And it makes sense. Uh, that is the court's uh, prerogative. I think it will invite more cases to come to the courts that may be premature or unnecessary or political. 
but that's the court's issue. You know, that's what they want. That's what they'll get. <laughs> so that's fine. I know in, in Texas, right, if we're taking deceptive trade practices, it would never work. It would never be allowed. You have to directly approach the other side and very specifically say, this is what I think is deceptive. And now you have two months to respond. But again, that's a whole different area. And maybe that's too restrictive. So that's just the fun part of comparing laws and and having that, what is it called? Comparative law, basically. This is a comparative legal analysis. Um, and that was jurisdiction. That is the issue there. The court moved on pretty quickly on that point. As for standing, that was the other jurisdictional issue. So the parties had no disagreements. The court has no real uh, mind-blowing observations. Countries like South Africa are allowed to file the suits, even if they're not directly involved in the conflicts, because the suits you know, countries have a duty to prevent genocide and filing a lawsuit at the UCJ, at the ICJ, is one of the ways that they can help prevent the genocide. So fantastic. That's what South Africa did. Uh, it was at this point where Israel said this duty to prevent genocide should also be applied to their connection to Hamas and South Africa should do more to pressure Hamas to release the hostages simply because they have those ties. They have that relationship the court did not touch that. They, they just, they, they didn't want all that. That was too much heat. And the court, I could tell, is really focused on just Israel. They don't want to talk about Hamas. They they recognize that Hamas started a war, but they don't want to talk about whether or not Hamas engages in genocide, whether or not South Africa should do more about Hamas. Hamas is just sort of uh, not in this case. Uh, and that is what the Israeli judge was pointing into in his concurrence or in his separate opinion saying that this is just bizarre that Hamas is Hamas is the main party here. And it's just bizarre that they're not mentioned by South Africa, by the ICJ. Uh, at least they're not uh, focused on. They're mentioned only in passing, like, like uh, I don't know, like they're not important when they are the reason for all of this, not just for the war, but for the, the how extensive the damage is, how much they contribute. But anyway, to stick to where the court is right now, the court goes into jurisdiction, it finds no issue. And then the court wants to get into the rights at issue. It doesn't go into genocidal acts, into genocidal intents. It wants to figure out who has rights, if anyone, and uh, are they being protected by a provisional order, which is like that preliminary temporary order, which makes sense. Uh, because what's the point of getting into intents and actions if ultimately we're discussing a non-protected group, like, for example, a military group? So as you may recall from last week, there are four protected groups. You have races, ethnicities, nationalities, and religions. If a person is targeted because of their real or perceived membership in one or more of those groups, that's when the Genocide Convention comes into play. So the court gets into that legal background. It reiterates its uh, basically the law and the law from the convention and then all of its developments of that law in the past cases, especially Bosnia and Myanmar. And then it applies law to fact. So it states what I think is obvious. I don't think anyone disagreed on this point, but the court rules that we're dealing with a group of people called the Palestinians. And they appear to be, because remember, we are at this point preliminary. Everything is just appearances and plausibility. The court is avoiding any, any um, conclusory language at this point. But it's fair to say, the, the court's opinion is that it's fair to say that Palestinians appear to be a distinct protected group they are a ethnicity, race, nationality, or religion. They're one or more, probably multiple of those. And as a protected group, they do have a right to be protected 
from being intentionally targeted as non-combatants. And specifically in this convention, uh, the Genocide Convention, they're protected from genocidal acts, complicity, incitements, and attempts. Uh, and maybe it's stating the obvious, but the court wants to lay the groundwork of who are we talking about? What rights do they have? Um, it doesn't talk about Hamas, but for example, Hamas would not be a protected group because that is a military group. And uh, the military is not a protected group in the Genocide Convention. Hopefully I'm not kicking a dead horse. This is maybe sounds obvious, but we want to get the basics down first. So the court goes into how they are a protected group and that the numbers are not uh, readily verifiable, which is kind of its hint of saying like, listen, we're relying on Hamas statistics here, but given what Hamas has estimated uh, for casualties and destruction, the ongoing operation has killed about 25,000 people. Uh, it's injured about 60,000. It's destroyed about 360,000 homes and displaced about one and a half 1.7 million Palestinians, which is, you know, that's a lot. It's not a small conflict. Uh, the court has, makes no mention about how much Hamas has contributed to that or how much Hamas tries to basically immunize itself by using civilian infrastructure. Uh, instead, this is just the bird's eye. This is how much this conflict has cost the Palestinians. And uh, that already, the, the Israeli judge did not like that. He felt like that is... Uh, how it, it suggests that this is all on Israel, when in fact you have another actor who is, uh, and this is unusual in warfare. Usually in a war, you have two governments, each protecting their own people and attacking the other side. And in this case, you have a government attacking a military, and both of them, uh, uh, there is no like, uh, well, the ir irony here is that Israel is the one offering protections to Palestinians and not Hamas, and it's Anyway, the court didn't get into all those weeds. Instead, it has these broad general statistics like South Africa offered. And it felt like that is already enough to bring us into the territory of the Genocide Convention. That when you have so much widespread destruction, it may be that there is a genocide. It may be somewhere in there. Uh, and therefore, it, there are rights at issue which are protected by the Genocide Convention. And that's why the court decided that it will issue preliminary orders instead of just dismissing, which is, uh, uh, that's a big decision to make. And this it differs dramatically from all the past decisions where, for example, Bosnia, and the Israeli judge was getting into it, but in Bosnia and Myanmar, for example, you have widespread destruction, but you also have clear evidence of armed forces intentionally massacring non-combatants. Uh, attacking them in a way where there's no military target. There's no hostile force. They're just bombing neighborhoods uh, in total. And in those cases, the courts did not go this far, <laughs> ironically. Uh, especially with Myanmar, the court really took uh, a step back and just said both sides need to comply with the law and we'll get back to you in 15 years about whether or not there's a genocide. And in Myanmar, the court had... Uh, I didn't know this till the judge pointed it out, but the Israeli judge, uh, Judge Barak, he pointed out that in the Myanmar case, the court had a report that had been compiled over two years. They had, I believe, 400 different interviews and just endless, uh, indisputable evidence of peaceful civilians being killed in mass. And in that case, the court basically just said, both sides just comply with the law, we'll get back to you. And then in this case, what the court has is these broad statistics, 25,000 kills, uh, uh, 360,000 homes destroyed. It's a really broad overview. 
of a conflict that is ongoing and it's only three months old. And the court already said, well, that's enough to make us concerned that there could plausibly be a genocide somewhere in there. Therefore, we're going to proceed. Uh, now, in addition to that, the court mentioned a few of the quotes that I believe this is exactly where we ended last week. So you have the defense minister of Israel saying there will be no electricity, no food, no fuel, no water, everything will be cut off. I have released all restraints. We're fighting human animals. Uh, there will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. That was a quote from, I believe, October 7 or 8, very early on. And the Israeli response to that was, look, here's what happened. He announces this October 7. This is while Hamas is still in Israel and people are outraged. And there was a lot of just intense fury. And yes, he said this, but he overstepped. He retracted it. And most importantly, at no point in the conflict has there actually been no electricity, no food, no fuel, no water. Um, they didn't say this explicitly, but just logically speaking, if there has been no food or water in Gaza for three months, there would be nobody in Gaza. Nobody can survive three months without any food. So there's been food and fuel. You can say it's not enough. But what he said about no food is just it never happens. Yes, it's a bad thing to say, but what actions speak louder than words, I think is the point that the Israeli side kept making is, yes, he said it. Yes, he said that I've released all restraints, but here is endless catalog of examples of all the restraints that have not been released. Anyway, so that was the Israeli side. The courts did not find that convincing. They said, basically, he made that statement. The statement was terrible. That is already falling within the prohibition on incitements. And he may have taken it back later, and maybe it was never carried out, but the incitement itself is forbidden. Not just the act, but even the incitements before the act. Uh, right, so there was that. Uh, it quotes the president of Israel, uh, Herzog, who said uh, at one point during some press conference, he said there's this rhetoric about civilians in, in Gaza not being aware, not being involved, and it's just not true. Uh, that's what he said. He's not saying that they should be executed, but he said it's not true that they're uninvolved and unaware. And then the Minister of Energy said, uh, and the court basically found these three to be the most, I guess, disturbing. Uh, we will fight this terrorist organization, Hamas, and destroy it. All the civilian population of Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. Um, and so when the Israeli position, when they were arguing about this and brought this up, they were saying this Minister of Energy, this guy is not a general. This guy is not in the chain of commands. He said they're ordered to leave immediately. Yes, he said that, but they, his orders are nothing. He has nothing to do with any military order, first of all. And second of all, nobody left immediately. Nobody left at all. They're not able to go to Egypt, to the West Bank, to Canada. Nobody has left. Uh, and not nobody, of course. Certain injured people did go to Egypt. And I believe certain injured people go to Israeli hospitals too. Like People are able to leave, but there's been no... You haven't seen a million Gazans leave Gaza. Uh, so that was the Israeli point of action speak louder than words, but the court decided... Acts are acts, and that is, of course, the worst kind of violation, but incitement is still uh, is still its own prohibition. So that was what the court reasons, and that's where we leave off there. I left a blank here in my notes for analysis. I didn't know quite what to add, and I think I interspersed my own analysis in the middle of that. Feel free if you have you know questions, commentary, like we're already getting to the end, so I'm happy to to pause and consider and, and deliberate. But that's where we are now in the court opinion. We're about 80% through. Uh, the last part is the part where everybody was holding their breath to say, what are the preliminary orders? So the court said, because of all that, um, uh, we want to issue a preliminary order. 
It's going to be more than just both sides will respect international law and we'll get back to you. We want to do more. Uh, so the court at this point, like all courts, it overviews the law. In order to issue a preliminary order, there has to be an urgent risk of irreparable harm to the rights of one of the sides. And it established that Palestinians are a people or appear to be a people who are protected and therefore they have rights that uh, ought to be protected, as do the Israelis. And so the court actually ends up ordering uh, both rights to be protected. Well, it'll specify which rights. But anyway, so the harm in this case, it need not be actually genocide, but any harm to any rights of either side should be protected if there is an urgent risk that they will be irreparably injured. So at this point, the court starts quoting all the different UN bodies. Because remember, the ICJ is a UN court. It's the United Nations court. It's the world court. It is independent from the UN. It doesn't take orders from the UN, but it is a body of the United Nations. So as far as uh, documents that the court finds authoritative, the UN is the golden standard. And the UN, it, it quotes different UN bodies saying that the healthcare system in Gaza is collapsing or about to collapse, or it has collapsed, or, you know, they make different statements, but it's it's bad. It's terrible. Uh, the civilian population is extremely vulnerable. Netanyahu has said that the war will last many more months, uh, and therefore the risk of a humanitarian crisis is serious, and the possibility of it deteriorating are, are uh, considerable uh, before the court's final opinion, which again is in 15 years. So Within 15 years, can there be a collapse of the health system? Of course. Uh, and now the court didn't consider, uh, how do you put this? So like the Israeli position about this, because the both sides argued about urgency, and I just don't think we got to it last week. But of course, South Africa argued it's extremely urgent. The war is uh, at its peak, and it will continue to be this intense for, for the foreseeable future. And then the Israeli position came in to say, actually, the most intense period was in October. It's been going down since then. And different generals uh, and the defense minister and the presidents have all said uh, the war is not over, but it's it's in a new phase. And the new phase will have less combat, more special forces, more um, hostage rescue, and less uh, of a constant airstrikes. Not just that, but it's already happened, I believe. That's uh, many of the reservists have been withdrawn, pulled out. It's a new phase. So the Israeli position is that the urgency has already come and gone. The courts disagreed and said, you know what, no, there's still, it is still urgent and the humanitarian situation is deteriorating. So there was a disagreement there between Israel and the court. Uh, the court did note that Israel has provided a lot of humanitarian aid and the attorney general is investigating many of the people who, the, the lawmakers, the wedding singer, the old man yelling out of the window of his car, they're, they're all under, well, not necessarily all of them are under, under investigation, but there are many people under investigation for saying, hey, all Arabs should be killed, all Gazans should be killed, uh, Gaza should be flattened, all kinds of statements like that. Uh, many of them do go beyond free speech and they do call for violence, which is a violation in Israeli law. And they are being investigated and the Attorney General of Israel, he provided, I don't know what he can provide about ongoing investigations, but he provided something to the court and the court took notice. Uh, it said that these steps are to be encouraged and they're good, but they're still insufficient to remove this risk that there will be irreparable uh, prejudice to Palestinians. So as a result of that, the court ordered the following, I believe it was four orders that at least there were more, but these are the four that stand out as important. So first, Israel must comply with the Genocide Convention. That's just the normal uh, order the court gives to everyone. 
but the court did take a step further to say, not only must Israel comply, but uh, like, a, I guess like a, like a polite reminder also, make sure to prevent and punish any direct public incitement to genocide. Bless you. I saw a little thing. Bless you. <laughs> so, um, and this, so the court, on the one hand, it didn't say anything that didn't already exist on Israel's behalf. Of course, it has to prevent and punish uh, incitements. But when the courts kind of highlights, hey, you need to do all this and reminder, also do that. It's the court's way of saying that this is what is on its mind. This is more, uh, not more significant, but more of an issue than anything else. Which makes sense. I mean, the, the quotes that were given by these different people were bad. It was, they were extreme. And the further away you get from actual lawmakers, the more extreme they would get. So like the, the wedding singer, the guy yelling out of his window, I mean, they were just saying kill all the Arabs and flatten Gaza and eliminate uh, that basically all, all Gazans are Hamas, something like that. And so the court is saying when they say these things, you need to step in front of that and say, first of all, no, this is not the policy of the government. And second of all, that's what you're saying is incitements and we're going to come and punish you. That's beyond free speech. That is essentially what the court is getting at. And it's a message to every country in the world. If you suffer some kind of 9-11 style attack, as terrible as it may be and as tempting as it may be, so go ahead and call the other side human animals and they will be destroyed, all of them, uh, with uh, what did Trump once say about fire and fury, that kind of fire and fury language. It must be avoided. It must be uh, punished if it's if it goes uh, beyond free speech. And Israel needs to take a special care to do that, which is kind of a hint of where the court will be in 15 years when it actually releases its opinion. It seems to be focused more about the speech than about any actions, because if there were actions at issue, the court would have said so. It is, can easily say so. And it could easily say your order to suspend all military operations. That's already what it's done to Russia. In this case, the court did not order that. Instead, it said, you know, really watch out for the speech. Uh, and Israel must take effective measures to enable more humanitarian aid into Gaza, which is, uh, the court noted that there already is aid. It just, there needs to be more and there needs to be, it needs to be effective. Third, Israel must not destroy any evidence related to any of South Africa's allegations, which again, is just something that already exists. And South Africa never accused Israel of destroying evidence, but the court kind of sua sponte, which for the non-lawyers in the audience, the, the court on its own put that in there, which I'm sure South Africa saw that and thought, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> That's even more than we even thought of, but okay. Uh, because again, there is no allegation that that's even been happening, but in a war, I mean, there's a lot of, oh, are we cut out? Are we still here? No, we're still here. We're still here. That it's, it's always possible evidence gets destroyed. A lot of things get destroyed in a wartime. So maybe the court is just being practical. And lastly, Israel must report. This was a big one that people love to report on. In one month from the opinion, Israel must um, issue a report of all the measures it took to comply with this order. And South Africa can make comments if it wants to on that report. So that's something that can be taken two different ways. Of course, Israel, Israeli officials can be offended and say, well, how dare you? Why should we make a report? And why are we being babysats? We're doing so much already. Uh, that's one reaction that can be had. And I'm sure right-wingers are already doing that. The way I see it, and I'm not Israeli, like, what, what, do I, what does it matter what I see it? But it's an opportunity, in my opinion. And I'm a glass half full kind of guy, but I think... I know the IDF, its Facebook page and just different social media, they're constantly putting out reports and information about what they're doing as far as humanitarian aid, not targeting uh, non-combatants and so on. 
but nobody cares. Nobody's looking at that. That's just, uh, it's assumed to be propaganda or it's not enough or whatever. Now the ICJ is giving Israel a chance to have a whole month, because in this case, they only had two weeks to put together a defense. Now it has a whole month to compile every single thing it does for humanitarian aid and release just a gigantic reports that people will pay attention to. Now that there's a deadline, people are looking, it will be newsworthy, people will actually see it. I think that's a, a benefit, but that's just one of those things where you can look at it two different ways. It's entirely possible Israel will ignore it and not release any reports uh, and just say, how dare they issue that? We don't agree with that. But I think it's an opportunity. I don't see why they shouldn't. It's a way to have everyone finally actually look at what is uh, being done that is non-genocidal, that is really anti-genocidal. When you have field hospitals and bakeries being reopened and all kinds of evidence, they were saying, for example, it used to be before this October 7 attack, Gaza would receive 70 trucks of food every day. And now, at least, uh, let's see, what was it, January 11, Gaza was receiving 109 food trucks every day. So it was receiving more food than ever before. Of course, it needs more food because there's destruction, but it just gets to, to the point that uh, the statistics, uh, statistics are very helpful at combating the idea that there's no food, there's no fuel, everything's collapsing. Uh, I think with its reports in a month, Israel can really stick to more statistics, more facts, and I think it's it's a net positive. But uh, anyway, so the court finishes to say that it emphasizes all parties here, uh, Israel and Hamas alike, they're all bound by international humanitarian law. In other words, the law of war. They're all bound by international law generally. And the court is gravely concerned about the hostages being held by Hamas and calls for their immediate unconditional release, which it's not going to happen. Hamas doesn't care. But at least that's one thing that the court gave uh, Israel's way to say that you do have rights, you have a right to self-defense, and you have a right to attack Hamas and to rescue the hostages, but you need to do it in a way that's more careful about human uh, about collateral damage, to put it that way. So there are 17 judges, 15 voted in favor of all of this. The judges of Israel, and I'll let you guess, the, I mean, maybe so it's too hard. Yes. Huh? South Which Africa. One? Well, you know, South Africa totally agreed with the 15. So the ones disagreeing were Israel and the judge for Uganda, ironically, mm -hmm. the judge for Uganda. So the judge for Israel agreed. Let's see. He agreed with two parts of this opinion, or maybe three, but he agreed with a few parts, despite disagreeing about jurisdiction. The judge for Uganda disagreed with everything. He went further than Israel. He disagreed with the whole thing and said none of this should be ordered. Whereas the Israeli judge, he ordered, he voted in favor of saying Israel must comply with the law and it must provide more aid. He said that's just fine. It's common sense. That's already what's required so why vote against it even if he doesn't think there's jurisdiction the judge for uganda had a whole interesting dissent which was saying this is not a legal case this is a political case therefore we have no jurisdiction there's nothing we can do there's nothing we should do we must let negotiation settle the issue because there's no court that can fix this which was just you know interesting opinion uh i don't fully understand it that's not how jurisdiction works but he he's doing his thing the judge for uganda has his own I guess, philosophy, his own jurisprudence left off with the judge from Uganda. I think his opinion took people a little off uh, uh, off, off guard. We were caught off guard because it's just an unusual jurisprudence uh, because every issue here is political. This is the world court. Countries don't file lawsuits purely because they have a legal question. There is always some political motive. Um, South Africa has elections coming up. The people who file the party have less than 50% of the vote for the first time ever. That's a very compelling reason to go do something big. 
but despite that, typically the court will still take something if it has, if there is a dispute, if there is standing, that's typically all the court wants to know. And the judge's position, it, it sounds very much like in the U.S. we have in federal law this, this concept of um, political question doctrine, that a, a federal court will not try to resolve a purely political question with no legal, uh, what would you call it, with no legal recourse. But that's that's American federal law. That's not international law. So that's it was an interesting opinion. And he did go on at length. He had a big dissent just going into how everything here is purely political uh, and he went into the history of this whole conflict. It was an interesting opinion, but uh, it was one out of 17 judges. For the remaining 16, they all agreed generally, here is how jurisdiction works, and there is jurisdiction, or I should say the remaining six, 15, because the Israeli judge, he did have a separate opinion, which I took some notes of. I, I mentioned briefly what he was saying uh, throughout this, uh, but he was saying essentially, uh, he starts off saying that South Africa's case wrongly imputes the crime of Cain onto Abel. Uh, that's that it, really this case should be about Hamas. If you talk about genocide, it's Hamas committing genocide. When you go into a kibbutz and exterminates, uh, it was up to 10% of certain uh, villages by the border just exterminated. They're all civilians. There's no military presence at all. This is not a civilians getting caught up in harm's way. This is not like rockets falling into IDF uh, facilities and then meanwhile you have let's say all these a thousand uh, israeli civilians just in the area this is a case where they are intentionally you know looking through their rifles seeing a civilian and shooting or kidnapping a civilian which is just that's clearly genocide that's clearly forbidden uh, but because south africa or because hamas is not a state therefore the icj is kind of its hands are tied and they don't care they're, they're not dealing with non-state actors they're dealing with states and it's an unfortunate reality here but that's uh, why the court is, why its opinion feels so one-sided and feels so, uh, like it just disregards Hamas so much. And it's because the courts, it doesn't deal with non-state actors. That would be maybe more the ICC. If you want to accuse specific Hamas uh, officials or, or soldiers of genocide, well, bring them to the ICC. Uh, but until Hamas becomes a state, until there is a state of Palestine that exists in, uh, in, in law, that there's just nothing to say about Hamas, besides that they should release all the hostages uh, right away unconditionally. Now, what he was getting at uh, at this point was, yes, Hamas should be more a part of the case. Uh, but in addition to that, genocide, for him, it's more than a word. He has lived through it. He is a Holocaust survivor. He was going on about his childhood, and he lived in a ghetto in Nazi Germany. And he saw what a genocide looks like. He saw what it looks like for a soldier or a group to go into a, uh, into a city and just start killing people indiscriminately, intentionally targeting civilians. He knows what that means, and he knows what it looks like. Uh, and this is where he gets more into just pretty much reiterating the Israeli position uh, of how much humanitarian aid there is, and how essentially, he doesn't quite say it like this, but one part of the logic on the Israeli side, and for the Israeli judge, is that there has never been a genocide in history with this much humanitarian aid, or really with any humanitarian aid. It's just not a thing. The Nazis didn't have, they weren't killing Jews in one area and then offering humanitarian aid to Jews in another. It was just a simple policy of extermination. And it's just, it just is bizarre to have this much humanitarian aid. You can say it's not enough, but the fact that it's there and saving so many people, how can that still be a genocide, even, even plausibly, even in any theory, how could there be any plausible standard being met when it's undeniable that there is aid? Uh, 
that was his question. That's on the question of, I think, many, uh, anyone who is, like, for example, the US, uh, Germany, I believe UK, there's many countries that have either come out in support of Israel's position or come out against South Africa's position, one or the other. And they're all basically saying the same thing is how could this even plausibly be a genocide when you don't have things like the Srebrenica massacre, things like the Holocaust, things like proof of the IDF intentionally targeting non-combatants. It's understood that, yes, there's a lot of uh, civilians being caught in the crossfire, but that's not a genocide. And in this case, actually, the Israeli judge, I know I quoted it somewhere. It went further on because he brought it in later, but he quoted, um, I want to find it for now. These, uh, hmm, I guess I'll just have to get to it when I get to it. But he quoted a document where, oh, here we go. So the drafters of the Genocide Convention I never knew this. No one mentioned it on either side, but he found it in his research. Um, so he mentioned the appropriate framework here is the Geneva Conventions, the law of war, and not the Genocide Convention. And the reason for that is because of what the people who wrote the Genocide Convention already said about war. Now, this is something I mentioned last week, how the Genocide Convention doesn't really talk about war. Uh, but the people who wrote it certainly did talk about war, and it was on their minds. And they said in a, in a statement that the, quote, infliction of losses, even heavy losses on the civilian population in the course of operations of war does not, as a rule, constitute genocide. In modern war, the civilian population inevitably suffers more or less severe losses. It would be desirable, of course, to limit such losses. Various measures can be taken to achieve that end. But this question belongs in the field of the law of war and not in genocide. End quote. And that was just so on point that I'm surprised neither side uh, found that. But that, uh, to him, that settled the question of the case. And if there is some other evidence of maybe some IDF soldier or commander who is going around just executing civilians willy-nilly, that is where you get into the genocide convention. But until then, if you're just saying Hamas targets are being targeted and there are too many civilian casualties, that's a question about proportionality, not genocide. Um, I think I mentioned that last week, but it's certainly, it was weighing heavily on his mind. Uh, and he goes into how intent is the key when you talk about genocide, it's all about intent. So he goes over the ICC trials in Rwanda, Yugoslavia, they set a very high bar. There were a lot of incidents that were clearly genocidal, at least by common sense, that still didn't meet that very high standard. He mentioned the ICJ case in Bosnia, where you also saw so many widespread atrocities clearly you have non-combatants being intentionally targeted not being caught in, in harm's way but being being intentionally attacked and even for the bosnian uh, genocide it was just one incident that had specific intent that was srebrenica and it was just so beyond the pale of what's uh, uh permitted that it just had to be genocide and he basically says where is the srebrenica in gaza where where did that happen uh, he mentioned how Croatia's case, we briefly talked about this because there was nothing to talk about, but the Croatia brought a case and it was dismissed because they just could not find any intent. Despite the fact that so many people said genocidal things, statements are not enough. You need action and more than action, you need a policy. The government must have some kind of a plan that is genocidal. It's not just some people doing terrible things and then being uh, prosecuted for it. Okay, so that's essentially his opinion. Um, he goes into, uh, we mentioned plausibility. How can there be plausibility when there's so much humanitarian aid? There have been all of these terrible statements from non-actors, non-decision makers. 
What difference does it make what they say is uh, what he's getting at? For the decision makers, like the defense minister and the prime minister, okay, they did say, for example, no food, no fuel. Uh, or he said uh, all restraints have been released. And it sounds terrible on paper, but look at what actually happened. None of that actually happens. So you have to look at the acts, not just the words. That's his position. I can tell that the majority disagreed because they're saying words are important. Incitements is forbidden and incitements is an act in and of itself. That's, I think, where you have some disagreements between the Israeli position and the majority of the courts. But uh, that, in a nutshell, is where we're at. It was a, besides the judge from Uganda and Israel, it was a unanimous opinion. And, yeah, you don't see, for example, in the U.S., sometimes you have an opinion where from the Supreme Court where you have three judges say this and three say that and three say that. And you just have a lot of concurrences and no clear majority. For this opinion yesterday, there was a very clear majority. 15 judges, 100% agreed about everything from jurisdiction to the preliminary order. The judge from Uganda, he's doing his own thing. And the judge from Israel, he agreed on some things. Uh, he explained, for example, in his opinion, I thought there was no jurisdiction. I thought, for example, there was no good faith to have a discussion. And that alone should kick the case, um, which is what I uh, was mentioning last week. You know, there, how can there be no discussion? Uh, so for him, there was no jurisdiction to begin with, but despite that, if the court sees jurisdiction, he'll still agree, yes, Israel should comply with the law. It should uh, punish uh, incitements to genocide. Yes, it should provide more humanitarian aid. Sure. He agreed with all that because he felt like this is not imposing any unique burden to Israel. This is already required under the law, and the court is just, you know, reminding that it should uh, do that. Which is a benefit to Israel because, you you know, like in most cases that we get as lawyers, the court initially up front will give you that initial order setting the dates and it will not give you any hints as to where it sees any issues because that's like that's not fair. It's giving you some advantage. If the court already tells you, hey, you need to you know strengthen this piece of evidence. In this case, the court gets to say, hey, Israel, if you need to work on this incitement thing. You have certain civilians saying terrible things. If you're investigating them, fine, but actually prosecute. Make sure that it's clear that what they're saying goes beyond free speech. And if you ever have a minister, even if it's the minister of heritage, if they say anything about uh, uh, smashing Gaza, crushing Gaza, uh, you know, kick them all out, they're all ordered to leave immediately, whatever language like that, you need to get in front of them and uh, clarify this is not our position. And what they said is, is the opposite of what we're actually doing. And if need be, fire them. You're able to fire the ministers or impose some kind of penalty. Maybe not criminal, because if it's not a crime, it's not a crime. But you can still fire them or do something to penalize them for what they're saying. And I already know the Israeli officials will say, like, what are you talking about? We're already doing that. So the example I gave with the uh, minister of heritage, I don't know what he said. He said something about how Gaza must be smashed. And almost immediately, as the Israelis mentioned in their arguments, the war cabinet, those are the guys actually in charge. They released a statement saying that what the minister of heritage just said was is wrong. And that's not the policy. And we will not do that. The enemy is only Hamas, not the Palestinian people. And so I guess what the court is getting at is that we need more of that. And if need be, whoever that minister of heritage is, fire him, replace him with someone else who will uh, not go saying these, you know, really right winger incendiary things. Yeah, that's where we're at. That was the opinion. Uh, Netanyahu, his stance before the opinion, his stance was, hey, whatever the court says, we have a right to self-defense. 
and the court has no rights to infringe on that. If it tells us for, to, to stop, we're just going to ignore it, which is, you know, while you're waiting for an opinion, maybe don't say that because now you're kind of like baiting the judges to, to you know, you're causing some bad blood here. Uh, in this case, he said they did not order us to uh, give up our right to self-defense. And that was the correct decision. They should have done more, but this was a good decision. I have a feeling Israel will comply with that requirements to provide a report. It's just, you know, everybody will be looking anyway. So if you're already compiling reports, why not do it in a way where people will actually look at it? If I was over there, that's what I would advise if I was in their uh, office of uh, attorney counsel or whatever it might be called. But that's where we're at. I think they will comply. They haven't said it one way or the other, what they're going to do about the requirements to submit a report. But we'll see. I'm leaning towards yes for them, because why not? It's just, it's uh, free publicity for what they're already, you know, thank releasing. You, thank you, Gurney, yes. for breaking it all down. That was, okay. that was extremely educational. And anyone who was listening to that undoubtedly learned so much and needed to hear that. You're an incredible asset to the legal community, to the Jewish community. And after you, you give me the platform to do this because otherwise it's all in my head and I'm like, oh, well, I know this, but what, what, you know, how does that help? It helps to actually release this to the public. And I don't have a YouTube channel. Like I don't, I don't do all that. I can maybe put something on Facebook, but five people will see it and it's way too much to type out. <laughs> Nobody reads all that. Well, um, I have to edit this and chop it up yeah. into different bite-sized pieces and we'll able to distribute it online Please. so people Absolutely. can get snippets of your words of wisdom and knowledge i saw a youtube comment that reminded me of your podcast briefly it said how it was a youtube comment in response to some video about this opinion and the youtuber is like a professor he tries to be very neutral and factual and the comment said something to the effect of how i'm grateful that there is an outlet for a journalist like you because most journalists today they tell us how we should feel or what we should think about something and what how the way it used to be is they would tell you what happens and how you feel how you think that's up to you but at least you know what happens and at some point that got lost along the way so i'm glad you're here to let people know what actually happens and uh, how people you know feel and what they conclude they can decide on their own it's not that hard to have feelings but they should at least be based on what actually happens because that these days is very murky oftentimes what happened and what's real and what's made up is often very hard to distinguish these days. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Gurney. Pleasure to see you again. You as well. Goodbye. Take care.